Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy. We don't know what to do without it. David Park. Is it even a Team House episode? We don't know. Hey folks, welcome to episode 195 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy, here with David Park. Hopefully all of our internet issues are now sorted. Hello Verizon, <laughs> bye Spectrum. <laughs> it was nice for a while, for a time. So hopefully we're back in business here. Uh, our guest on the show tonight is Dave Madden. Dave served as an officer in SEAL Team 2 and then in the uh, team's intelligence fusion cell. Uh, and uh, has a lot of other interesting experiences and, uh, you know, life in general. So we're really excited to have him on the show tonight. Really appreciate you taking time out of your uh, Friday evening, Dave. Oh, it's good to have a drink with the boys, right? Absolutely, man. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, I'm drinking Guinness tonight. It's not my it's not my default go-to, but it's cold out, and that's what I had. Okay. What's right. your default go-to? Oh, I've gotten really into, uh, like, really good cider, mm-hmm. which is... Like most people who drink cider or think about hard cider, they like haven't had the real stuff. The real stuff is like, it's like herbal and dry. And like, there's this um, company called uh, Posterity Cider Works, makes the best cider I've ever had in my entire life. And they do it in like this, in this way that also restores the community around them. Like they'll go to old homesteads, like hundred year old homesteads, and they'll find old, these hundred year old apple trees just covered in blackberry vines, like completely neglected. Some, somebody's inheritance that they didn't know they had. They'll go in, they'll clear it out, pull the apples down, make the cider, sell it, but also deliver back a couple of bottles. And all of a sudden those people will be like, wait a second, this came from grandpa's orchard. Uh, we should take care of it. We, we should take care of it. And then they do. Uh, and so like you have all these people kind of reclaiming their, their inheritance. Oh, that's awesome. All, yeah. It's incredible. And that's why I tried it at first. I was like, ah, chances of this being good. I don't have any that's idea, cool. yeah. but I love but I love what they're doing. They're restoring their entire community by making, by making something. Uh, and then I tried it. It was also happens to be the best cider I've ever had. So like, that's my guilty pleasure. Cool. I'll, I'll take a look for it. Yeah. So the cider has grown on me a little bit in time, you know, but I haven't tried that one. We're uh, drinking Lagavulin tonight. Uh, this is the Offerman edition. Cask. Okay. It's good. The, ma- the man's drink. Yes. Right. Indeed. 
Uh, plus, you're mixing it with the uh, the cigars, which I've noticed are perhaps your guilty pleasure, Jack. Yeah, they are. The uh, this is uh, uh, Las Cavaleras uh, 2022. Uh, this is actually the first time I've had these. They're very good. I uh, I can't I can't do cigars. I can't do them. I'm just not. I, I think I'm just not masculine enough. You know, you're you're not a tobacco guy. I don't think. No, no. Well, you're a college grad, so you probably smoke pipes. Well, he's in he's in he's in Oregon, but so he's smoking something out of it. Right, right. (laughs) That's true. the uh, The nearest business to me is a dispensary. That is true. (laughs) So, Dave, uh, let's jump right into it, man. Tell us a little bit about like your upbringing and how you grew up, and sort of like what your path was that kind of eventually took you towards the Navy. Yeah. So, um, my dad was in the Navy. Actually, he was a dentist. That doesn't really count. Sorry, Dad. And so we, you know, we traveled around a bunch and I, you know, had a lot of, like, I was in the Philippines when Mount Pinatubo erupted and got evacuated on the uh, USS Peleliu. And so like, but it was, it was comfortable upbringing. Like my dad was a dentist. So my parents both had Volvos. We lived on a cul-de-sac. I, you know, I I went to a nice high school. Um, And the the thing, there was literally nothing in my past that would suggest that I was going to go be a team guy. Um, Then in college, a buddy and I were, we started a software company, a legal tech company in like 2006, and it started to do okay. Like we started to get customers, the State Farm Insurance Company was using it. And I was, instead of being like excited that, hey, this thing we built is doing well, I froze. I was terrified. I was like, wait a second, I am not ready to spend the rest of my life in front of a computer. I have to do something. I can read, write, talk, and write code, and these are literally my only skills. Um, I can't, you know, pump, I can't put gas in a, you know, gas in a car or pump a, t- pump a tire. I've never shot a gun. I've never jumped. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know any of these things. Um, and so I just started looking for the hardest thing I could possibly find. And I saw the attrition rated SEAL training. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Also, it tests all these things I'm really terrible at. Like, I was 160 pounds, nerd, couldn't, like, I couldn't even talk to girls, man. Like, you know, I was definitely not the person that anybody thought was going to be a team guy. In fact, most of my friends in college were made fun of me. They're like, no way. I had like one friend who's like, yeah, you'll crush it, dude. No worries. Um, and so I, uh, I, we, we kind of crash landed that startup and, uh, I spent the next year, I worked at the, the genius bar at Apple, which is actually where I learned most of my people skills. Um, while I was training to go to buds joined with 330 of my closest friends and we ended with 17 originals and the rest of the time I spent, I spent the next decade, um, in the SEAL teams, I was going to stay in until it wasn't fun anymore. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's my military career. So and I got out and did a bunch of startup stuff. What did your dad think of you like volunteering for the SEALs after your, you know, high school and college years and whatnot? Yeah. Um, they were terrified. My, both my parents were terrified and my dad, they, I wanted to enlist originally. So I went into OCS and buzz, buzz as an officer, um, largely because of the violence of their reaction against the idea that I might enlist. Um, I knew the difference, but I couldn't communicate it to them. And I wasn't enough of an adult at, at the time to really like make, make that like hard, hard call myself. And so I was like, okay, well I'll go in as an officer. It'll be fine. Um, so he was mostly terrified that I was going to go in and enlisted after that. They were just, they didn't really know what to think. Yeah. Was he worried that like if you didn't make it that you'd be out in the fleet as a as a boatswain's mate somewhere like chip and paint? Yeah, yeah, just some uh, some undes like haze gray underway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was definitely a concern. 
so you uh, had you went right into that seal pipeline. Um, we can we can skip past Navy basic training. I'm sure that was very exciting. But as we jump as we jump a little far further forward into wait uh, wait let's talk no I'm just kidding the co-ed barracks we've talked about that on previous episodes <laughs> co-ed barracks uh tell tell us about you know your you know a, a self-described nerd uh hitting the ground in uh buds the the ultimate test of uh, alpha males everywhere uh how how, how, I mean, what was that experience like for you suddenly being in this environment where dudes are screaming at you and, and spraying you with a fire hose and all that good stuff? Uh, it was both exhilarating and like terrifying. Um, and I, I, I admit, I mean it harder on myself than I needed to because I was vegetarian at the time. I'm not anymore, but I was vegetarian. So I did Bud's vegetarian, wow, actually. What? And that drew, I was like, that was basically me being a lightning rod. So all of the instructors, <laughs> when they found out, it was, it was, it was fucking over for me for quite some time. I basically, that was, that was dumb of me to even like say anything about it. Um, but, uh, no, it was great. Actually, it was super fun. Um, and there was, there were points where, you know, break, you know, break, break out on the first, like for hell week is absolute chaos, but it's so well organized chaos that even while you're in the chaos, you look around and you're like, Oh shit, this is a machine. Like these are, Fucking professionals. Can we swear on this podcast? Yes, by the way? It's absolutely. Yes, we right. drink, we right, swear, good. we get naked. Everybody wants to see your shorts. Or not. Yeah, they want to see my, yeah, they, uh, I heard there were a lot of, a lot of dudes asking me to take my shirt off. I was, you know, I, I feel good about that. Like I have options. Uh, it's probably not going to happen. It's a little bit cold. Um, <laughs> but you know, uh, Buds, Buds was actually like super fun. Um, for the, for the most part, even the pain parts were like, you said, let's skip ahead. Let's get past the, uh, you know, the basic Navy training. There was a time when we were getting such a bad beatdown in buds where they like they stopped up the sinks in the classroom and they made us push all the door all the desks and chairs to the side flooded the classroom we're getting beat for like two hours here back to the beach and whatnot so it's this like sandy slurry dudes are dudes are pissing in it like it smells it it's just, it's the worst thing you could possibly imagine like it is the most violent beatdown like i still have i still have scars on my hands from this beating and uh I looked, I turned, turned to my buddy who was in OCS with me and we're like, dude, at least we're not folding our underwear into six inch squares. Like, and we both just started laughing and just in the middle of the complete chaos, there's like dudes crying, like in crying, like the fetal position, like getting just the, the shit kicked out of them by the instructors. And I was like, this, this is actually pretty awesome. You know, out, like, out when, of, do you, out, when do you experience the sort of chaos? Yeah. Out of curiosity, because you know, you, you, you recognize the order behind the chaos. Do you think that going into it as, as a nerd, sort of as a programmer, as a very analytical and tech savvy person, that you saw the patterns and that, that you sort of had a different perspective that others might not? So uh, I think I definitely had a different perspective than a lot of my classmates who were, you know, basically, there was a lot of guys that were just out of high school or out of high school in like a year. Um, and I had a different perspective than they did. And I don't think it was because of any analytical skills or any like specific background. I think it was just like the difference between an 18 year old and a 23 year old is pretty substantial. I'd had, I'd been to college. I'd been on my own. I'd had, I'd had multiple jobs, you know, I'd been in the world a little bit. And so I had like some context, whereas I think it would be a lot more terrifying coming straight from high school where you're like coddled into this. Right. Right. Makes sense. And you were going through, uh, one of the other things we skipped over is you went through OCS. So you were going through as an officer. Yeah, yeah, which is another another way to get a lot of extra uh, instructor attention. A veg 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 officer. With good cause. Now, yeah, did you? Yeah, it was. 
it was bad. In addition to being the vegetarian, were you like working, wearing Birkenstocks and wearing hemp shirts and stuff like that? No, no, I didn't have any style back then. No, <laughs> nice. Well, a actually, a serious question though. Uh, going through that, yeah. that that experience as a vegetarian, I mean, did, does there was there like a performance? issue as far as like what you i mean the, the 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 like stereotypes about being a vegan or vegetarian is you're like low energy you're not can't you, right, you, right, you right. can't you can't build muscle tone i mean some of this is maybe not really true but i'd, I'd like to hear your perspective i think that um you can loop what one i actually don't think a vegetarian diet is the best best diet for like at maximum human performance so i definitely put myself at a disadvantage doing that uh but at the same time i'm Fairly certain it was Bill Russell who, like, you know, legendary NBA player was, I think he was actually vegan. Carl Lewis was vegetarian. So, like, there's, like, max, there's, like, high-performing vegetarians for sure. You just have to be careful about you're getting your 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 macros and all that. You have to be careful you're getting the right amount of protein in your amino acids and all that. But if you're careful, I don't, it's, it's obviously doable. I did it. Right. Um, however, I think if I did it again and I didn't do it that way, I think I would have had an easier time. Mm -hmm. um, and I physically was, like, I was one of the faster runners. I was one of the fastest runners, always in like the top five running, top three swimming. You know, I, I did well in all of those things, but the things that crushed me were the things that required strength, like log PT and whatnot. I still did okay, but like and I carried my weight, but it, they were they were bad and they probably didn't need to be as bad as they were. Now, were you, I mean, I know that one of the things about Buzz is guys gain, tend to gain a lot of weight, like a lot of muscle weight during Buds because aren't you guys eating like four times a day? Yeah. So I, so I think you have like a body composition change, but you don't gain a lot of weight. Okay. So I started at one, I started at 165 and it, my body composition changed because I ran track in college. So I was all quads, hams and ass. That was mm -hmm. like my entire body. And so I definitely redistributed weight to be more balanced. Um, but it's the, the big, like massive, like muscle gain for most team guys is like, at like at, during SQT and after because okay. buds you're burning so much you're basically eating four pizzas a day and two big breakfast burritos and four milkshakes just because you're shivering the entire time right 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 yeah what was that like for you because water is sort of the great divider right I mean water mm -hmm. will take it out of you like nothing else will oh yeah now you were a track runner were you also a swimmer I was a really strong swimmer. I, I wasn't a competitive swimmer since like grade school, but like I, when I grew up on all these Navy bases, the only thing to do, like my dad was stationed in 29 Palms. So like a Marine Corps base in the middle of nowhere, what's there to do there? Well, you can either get in trouble or you can go to the pool. And my mom was a swimmer. So we don't, we just spent all day at the pool and we'd wrestle with the Marine coast with the Marine um, like lifeguards. So I was used from like the age of like seven to like almost drowning on the back of is you know a, a six foot seven Lance Corporal at the bottom of the pool who was wrestling with me right so like the the water was never the water was never a problem for me the temperature I mean it was it's cold as fuck but like I you know I, I did okay there were guys that did worse I had one dude in my class um, Izzy he brilliant brilliant guy and like really really tough but he has no body fat because he's like. Like he, when he takes a shirt off, it looks like a Batman suit, you know, he's just like, just ripped. And so he had no body fat whatsoever. And so he would just hype out just constantly. Yeah. Um, and so, so like I, they would pull us out because Izzy was hyping out. It's a good way to get over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
So uh, you go through that experience and then move on to SQT. And, and by the way, what year is this? Oh, shoot. Let's see. I OCS was 2008, so this is 2009. Okay, okay. And then yeah, it's class. Go, go ahead. I was going to say class 277 in Buds. Um, and then what was it like for you starting like your dive training and small unit tactics and all that good stuff? Oh, dude, it was so fun. Yeah. <laughs> it, was so, it, was so, it was just exhilarating because I'd never done anything like any of these things before. And, you know, like combat diving is miserable. Uh, like, you know, four hours on bag, like you're just like, you're just like the, the highlight of your four hours other than the actual tactical thing is that time you have to pee and you get warm for about 10 seconds. And then like you're back to just the cold monotony of just like putting, putting out and hoping that you hit the ship. But man, like if you go on bag for four hours and you come up and hit a sh hit, like hit your target ship, there are very few things that have been like more, uh, more gratifying than that. Um, it's, it is absolutely physically miserable, but it's also really fun. And then small unit tactics. I mean, it's paintball it's fun and then you get to do some crazy stuff like you know like try to trick the instructors and beat them at their own game which is always the best part how'd you do that the best example was actually not in sqt it was we did a um we did this combat tracking course in fort huachuca like right on the arizona mexico border and um the our fire our ftx was we had to carry this like 200 pound dummy like it was something it was something like five five or ten clicks or something it was a long it was a long way and we're like oh that's gonna suck but we can do it and uh we were supposed to cover our tracks on the way so that the instructors couldn't track us it was like the anti-tracking part but we realized that that was gonna suck a lot and we might have and we might have a better way around it and so we took two of us carried the dummy did a J hook around a piece of terrain. The other guys laid down like a really, really heavy track. So the instructors would just get pulled that direction. We went basically doubled back and stole their truck from the start point <laughs> and then drove, drove to the end. And they were, dude, they were so pissed. They were livid. Like, like I've, I've never seen an instructor so mad. And then, and then they're like, what made you think you could do that? And we're like, look at the rules. And, and they looked at the rules and like, Damn it. So the next guys, the next guys, that went, there was a rule like no stealing instructor vehicles. <laughs> but we stole a pickup truck to carry a dummy five miles instead of us having to do it. So that was, you know, that sort of stuff is always super fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, and then finally, you know, by the end of all this uh, fun and, and misery scattered throughout, uh, you get your trident or, or do they still do they do a probation period on the teams? No, they don't. They don't anymore. They give you a trident at your SQT graduation and you go to the team and then if your chief is old school, they'll take your trident symbolically and put it in the bird cage until you've earned it. Uh, my chief did that. Uh, my first chief was awesome. He, he ended up, didn't end up deploying with us for political reasons, <laughs> but, uh, at first, yeah, seal team two, when I was there was extremely political and not, not a particularly great place to be. Um, but when I, you, when you really say political, like you mean like internal infighting kind of thing. I mean, internal politics. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they do, they, we did a probationary period, but not really. You get your trident. Do, now, do they, do they, did you get it pinned? Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, you get, you get your trident pinned on you at your No, I mean, graduation. I mean, you, like, pinned. In, in, oh, blood, like blood, no, all the way in? No. Now, do you guys do that? 
There are rumors. There are rumors that that still exists. <laughs> Some might say. I, we'll say uh, it. Def- I, I definitely knew that it happened, and you you it was a voluntary thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Maybe maybe at McPee's afterwards, once you're allowed to go there for the first time. <laughs> and while all of this is all, all this mayhem is going on, you got married during SUT. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife and I have been together for. My girlfriend at the time had been together for a long time. And um, so we were, I don't know why we, I don't even know why we waited as long as we did. I think we were just, oh, I know exactly why. Because she was in chiropractor school when I started Buds. And she was oh, she was in San Jose. And when I finished Hell Week, she realized, okay, like, this is kind of a, a thing. Like, we're either going to go in different directions or she was going to come down. And um, we had a phone conversation about it. And then she stopped going to chiropractor school and came down about like two weeks after hell week. Once it was like statistically likely that I was going to make it. Um, yeah. So that's, that's like when, when I knew like, okay, we both kind of made a choice to like do this thing together. And then it was just a, a matter of like, we, we got married before I went to seal team two so that the Navy would pay to have her stuff moved. Uh, like our time, our timing was directly dictated by like dependent benefits. <laughs> Uh, Dave, do you want to shout out to uh, our sponsor for this show? For sure. Um, so um, our sponsor for this show is Silent SLNT Faraday Bags. Uh, they have uh, bag sleeves, wallets, cases. Um, they're all exquisitely designed to ensure your devices become invisible, attra- uh, untrackable, and silent. Um Instantly block cell, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, GPS tracking, RFID, SAT, EMP, and EMF radiation. Use code TEAMHOUSE for 10% uh, off or use the link in the description. That's TEAMHOUSE for 10% off. Um, and look, guys, like having a – if you're traveling, if you're going places uh, and you're not using your phone or not using your laptop, um, having a Faraday bag – is a good thing. You don't have to be planning a major crime. You don't have to be hiding from a government organization. Like it's good, sensible. It's, it's just really good, sensible stuff. And not just your phones, but your wallets too. Your uh, laptop, uh, your laptop, you know, anything that has RFID, Bluetooth, uh, wireless connections, tablets, uh, you know, keep it safe, put it in a Faraday bag when you're traveling, when you, you know, when you don't need it, um, protect yourself. All right, back to you, Dave. Um, I like how the I like how the URL has all the vowels are silent. Yeah, I was like, what's going on there? Oh, silent vowels, smart. Got Very it, smart. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So you get married, you get your trident. What's it like showing up at SEAL Team 2, taking a platoon as a brand new officer? Yeah, uh, well, I showed up with a completely messed up uniform. Like my my ribbons were on the wrong spots. We never wore a dress uniform in Buds. We were just in camis. I didn't know any of this stuff. And so I showed up and uh, the first guy that I 
met um, was a, a guy named Adam Shapiro, who's still, still in crushing it. Um, great, great dude. But he pulled me aside. He's like, look, dude, you are all kinds of fucked up. And, I, and so like, this was my, I walked into the SEAL team building and this is the first words that somebody said to me, you're all kinds of, I'm like, oh, this is off to a great start. I'm going to do great here. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I had to fix all my uniform stuff. And then, um, you know, I, 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 my first platoon was like really chaotic. The chief and the OIC that I started off working for, uh, with, for, uh, neither one of them ended up deploying. And so like we had a whole head shed replacement halfway through the workup. Um, so that was definitely, that was definitely, it, it was chaotic, but, uh, you know, you make do. What, what is the officer's relationship to their team? Uh, you know, as a new officer and, mm -hmm. and even moving on and did anybody like in buds or any time thereafter, like pull you aside and explain to you, like, this isn't the line Navy. Yeah. So the, it was pretty clear in buzz that it wasn't a line Navy. Um, and so things like fraternizing are very differently defined in the, in, you know, in the, in the fleet and in NSW, like you can have drinks with the boys after work, like that is okay. Um, they, during training, they actually did a really great thing that they're still doing. Um, it was probably the best leadership training that, uh, that I saw in, in NSW It's a thing called JOTC junior officer training course. And, for us, it was between BUDS and SQT. And so they would take, you'd go through BUDS with your classmates and they would see you at your worst, like your like absolute bottom. And so what they do, they take the officers out, put them in a different class, put them in, in this JOTC course while your enlisted guys go ahead. So you do this training course and then the next batch of enlisted guys would come in and you would do SQT with them uh, so that you got a fresh, you got a, you got to renew a relationship. Um, and uh, so like Jotsi did a lot of, talked a lot about the responsibilities of good, good officers. There was a senior E6 that was there um, and, and a senior O3. So both with recent combat experience, basically this is how you can survive, thrive, do well as a junior officer when you roll into your first platoon. Um, so they actually did a really good job of that. And, you know, a lot of that was like, you know, know your boys limitations, but don't let them know they have any. Um, and a lot of it is like learn to trust and lean on your chief. Yeah. That's awesome. So they set you up for success before you get there. They did. They did a really good job of that. I was like, again, um, the entire, that entire first training pipeline was really impressive how professional it was actually, I was, I was expecting it to be just mayhem and it was mayhem, but professional mayhem. Right. Right. Controlled mayhem. And, and exactly. so can you tell us a little bit about like, what was your platoon? Like, what was it like when you got to met, meet these guys, whether on the job training with them or going out, having a beer with them, who, who were these dudes? Yeah. Um, so it was, I think, I think every platoon and every, every, every team is, is probably very similar in that there are some guys who, if they weren't there, weren't there, they'd be, you know, getting their MBA and, or like, you know, running for Congress and maybe they do that later. Um, uh, and then there's some guys who are like break glass in case of war. Like if they weren't a team guy, they'd be in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there, there's definitely a mix of those and coming in as an, you know, coming as a junior officer, you're the bottom of the bottom, like nobody, like people understand that you're necessary, but especially on the East coast, there's like this really big difference of notice between East coast and West coast. So I did my first platoon at two East coast. Um, and I 
did the rest of my career on the West Coast. And there's this huge difference. And I think it has to do with uh, proximity to development group. Um, because at dev group, officers are uh, not well respected in the like broader culture. They're a necessary evil, but just barely because of the Navy makes us do it or something like that. Um, and so that was sort of the culture that I rolled into it too. It was uh, it was an offshoot of that. And so it was, it was hard finding a place to like, uh, to put your feet basically to get your feet underneath you. And I didn't, I don't think I did a really good job of it either. Um, uh, there, there's definitely things I look back and I'm like, man, I, if I, if I, if I'd only been just a, like a little more mature, I would have handled that particular mm. situation a lot better. Yeah. I mean, especially now you're dealing with seals who at this time, some of them have quite a bit of combat experience. Right. And here you are a fresh faced, mm. you know, young officer who's, in charge of them. Right, right. So the, the 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 two caveats there I would say is that the guys in my platoon with combat experience were by far the most welcoming of everybody. Really? It was the guys who had gone to who had gone to Europe and like trained the Latvian soft on their first pump and this is their second. Those were the ones that like really wanted to put the hammer down. And you could see that immediately. And and I think that, you know, that's a pattern that we see a lot it just in everyday life, right? Um but the uh, shoot, I forgot what was the, the other the other thing I was going to say. Uh, but no, so like there was that. Oh yeah, also um, I wasn't in charge of the entire platoon. There's no IC when you because when you roll in as a uh, for your first first platoon as an officer, it's an assistant officer in charge. Okay. So in the platoon, there were two to three AOICs, usually two, one for each uh, one for each fire team, basically, and then uh, an officer in charge who has has at least done one deployment. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I mean that's pretty leadership heavy because a SEAL platoon is like sixteen to eighteen guys. Exactly, exactly, something like that. Um, some and yeah, it is. It is, except that the AOIC role is especially again. This is like really talking to my West Coast peers. Um, it's very different on the East and West Coast. The role, the tactical role of the AOIC at ours. For, for at SEAL Team Two, when I was there, it was very um, learn heavy, heavy on heavy on learning and less on mm-hmm. much leadership. You're not making any tactical calls. It's where you're not supposed to make any tactical calls. I ended up doing that, but that was because the E6s um, sometimes had you know uh, challenges making calls when they were bolts flying. Well, let's start to get into that about, uh, you know, when you find out that you have this deployment coming up, uh, you know, you guys call it a workup, like your pre-mission training. Uh, can you yeah. take, take us through some of that? Um, well, so, yeah, the, I mean, the, the way the way it goes is you don't quite know what your deployment's going to be right away. So you just do, you start doing the, your generic workup and then it starts to get more and more specific as you get closer and closer. Um so when I got to SEAL Team 2, we had no idea we were going to Afghanistan. It could we, we could have been going to the Philippines and doing J-sets. Um, so I was really actually like, I mean, you don't you don't join the SEAL teams. You don't join the Green Berets to go train other people who go to war. You will join because largely you you want to see what, what you have in you. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, when I found out that we were going to Afghanistan, I was psyched because I was I was going to get to find out, oh, and that's that's like one of my big motivations is I wanted to find out what I was made of. And, and your, your wife was also excited about you going to Afghanistan. <laughs> no, no, she was not excited, but she actually did like an, an incredibly like a 
not not shockingly, but just like in general, like she did a really, really good job of compartmentalizing. Um, I didn't really feel like she was super stressed about it. And I don't think she let herself feel the stress until I came back. Mm-hmm. Um, but she knew that this is like, this is what's happening. And so like, why, why, why fight it, right? It's amazing. So what happened when you found out that you were going to Afghanistan? Like what kind of train up were you guys doing and, and whatnot? So we have a, there's a, there's a six month ULT period that is basically uniform across every platoon. And then after that, um, you have, you have some time to build up specific skills for where you're going. So we did, you know, high angle shooting and pack mule stuff in Montana. Um, it's just really great training. Uh, and then we did some, some things in New Mexico for, uh, like, more Afghan, Afghan specific things where they had like a Mount town set up that looked like an Afghan village and role players and all that. Um, so we were reasonably well prepared for those sorts of things. But the other thing I, I guess I should probably should have led with this is that the mission we were going on was VSL stuff. So village stability operations, coin stuff, green beret work, like really, really interesting, but not the sort of thing that most of the guys in my platoon signed up for they signed up to kick doors and, and you know and do do frogman stuff and so there's this cultural kind of backlash right. against against what we were going to be doing mm-hmm. um and that showed up i mean it definitely showed up overseas when uh you know when we when we got there without supervision like guys guys are going to end up doing the things they want or focus on the things they want they'll will those things into existence and um uh it may not be the best thing for that specific mission, right? So like frogmen want to break stuff. They want to shoot, they want to kick in doors and all that. And so VSO, which we did some VSO training, um, there was a, there was not a lot of, people weren't really that into it. We'll, we'll put it this way. There, um, there were a few of us who were like, okay, well, this is the job, let's crush it. And that definitely happened. But there was a, um, we had a bit of a dearth of leadership uh, by the time we were getting ready to deploy because my, the good chief, the only one with co- like real legitimate Afghanistan combat experience had been fired for standing up for the guys too much. Um, it was kind of a dysfunctional situation. So like we had, we had, a, we had this, like, you know, you see the SEAL teams hit the newspapers and you're like, oh, there's some cultural problems there. Like I definitely experienced some of those, um, in, at, at my, in my first platoon for sure, where, um, like we have this mission that is valuable and important. And maybe it's not what you signed up for, but guess what? We're supposed to be silent professionals. Let's go get it. Um, and so there was a lot of, there was a lot of backlash against that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand too. I mean, it's, I think a lot of the military went through that, right. That you were trained for one thing. Oh, yeah, and now, for they're, sure. now they're asking you to do something completely different. It's like, Oh, what? Yeah, no, I, it, it is absolutely understandable. Um, at the same time, it yeah, is what it is. Yeah, I, I, it, it is what it is. Like, what what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're gonna quit? Oh. So where 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 in Afghanistan were you getting sent? What was your understanding of the mission when you guys deployed? Yeah. So the they gave us a book called I think it was called The Village about Marine Corps doing basically the pre, the precursor of VSO in Vietnam. Oh, the CAP guys. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was a great, great book. And like, so like, that was my understanding as we we're going to go and sort of go in Dig 
and, you know, try to understand what they were after and try to find a way to take, you know, the ground truth and meld it to the mission goal and find, you know, find a way to like get to that point. Right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so we went to Soda, we, uh, we went to Southeast Afghanistan. We were in, um, Aruzgan. We started off at a, when we got, when we got to the ground in Aruzgan, my platoon went to a place called Kushkadir, which was like a teeny little, a teeny little outpost that was supposed to be tactically or strategically significant because it was going to be next to this big road that never ended up getting built. And so there was literally nothing going on there. Like we took over for an ODA team and they're like, we have like, there's nothing here. There's nothing going on. And so the first thing we started doing is like, okay, well, where, where can we go? Can we, can we move somewhere? Um, and so I took three guys down to this, this place called Chora, which is, um, as far as I know, it's the, the, like, and the homeland of Mullah Omar, kind of one of the places between us in, uh, you know, within, within a reasonable drive of where we were that we could maybe go actually do some, do some real work. And so we set up a, we built a new VSP there, um, did that for a couple of months, like while getting rocket attacked and all that, it was, uh, it was, it was, an, it was probably the most interesting construction job I've ever worked on. Uh, it's like suicide bombers, uh, all, all, all those things while we're trying to build a base. Um, and then the platoon came out and we, then we finished off the deployment there. So while you were there, um, like how, I know that like there were guys on the team that didn't want to do that, but how did they adapt while you were there? Um, it depends on the, depends on the day. Um, uh, there were, the guy, the really guys that really, really wanted to smash things, played a lot of video games, and then they also ended up turning, uh, taking one person's word. Let's say they're working, they're working some intel. They would take one person's word at perhaps give it more validity than it necessarily deserved, in order to have a target to go check out. Um, and so it was, it was a lot of fishing with dynamite, basically, um, which actively undid a lot of the work that we had done while there was just four of us there building the base like we had actually like made inroads with the local with, with the local tribal chiefs um and that sort of got erased uh pretty quickly once the rest of the platoon showed up which was which was crushing absolutely crushing was that because you were hitting uh the enemy or was it because you were hitting dry holes and just pissing off the local population exactly just dry hole after dry hole after dry hole um and it didn't always stay that way, but the vast majority of the ticks I've been in uh, have been us getting ambushed by them because somebody was too impatient to just sit. Um, and so, yeah, it was mostly mostly dry holes just stirring up hornet's nests. And then we would get a 107 rocket over the wall, uh, you know, an hour after we got back right, to base. Right. As a, yeah. as a young man, young officer who had, you know, left a, you know, a, a startup that, or, you know, you left the startup industry um, and the wealth therein because you wanted to, you know, prove yourself and find out what you were made of. And you went to the SEALs. What was it like for you, that first tick? And for viewers who don't know, tick is troops in contact. What was it like for you, that first tick? The first, like... Actual I, I tick, think the, yeah. Yeah, the, the, fir the first actual tick was... Um, way more disorienting than I thought it would be because nobody 
the thing I wasn't prepared for more than anything was that like when somebody's shooting at you, you don't actually know where it's coming from. Right. Like it's not a video game where there's like a red directional thing. Like somebody <laughs> over here is shooting at you. It's just, it's just some like bullets are like snapping by you, but you don't know which, which direction. And so you're laying down trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Everybody's having a different reaction. Um, in my first take, nobody, nobody in that, in that fire team had been in combat before. This is all of our first time getting shot at. And the people that were supposed to be making calls were among the most terrified. And, uh, you know, it ended up being a situation where I, I picked up the squad leader and they tried to physically move, move him to get us, to get us moving. Um, it, uh, so it was, it was mostly just really, really disorienting. And then, um, there was a, there was definitely a bit of like post tick disillusionment, like, wait a second, what this is, what are, this is what, war. What, what, what the hell? hell what, what the hell kind of war the, is this? What the hell was that? Yeah, <laughs> right. this is not what I was prepared for. Right. Um, yeah. So, and 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 most of the, like I said, most of the ticks have been because like we set up, and then we hear something going on over there, and instead of us staying where we are, somebody would get itchy and be like, "Oh, we gotta, we gotta go there now," and then we would end up like getting caught, getting caught on the way. So there were a lot of. I mean, there was. Yeah, there were there were a lot of takes where where it was it was us getting ambushed. So I've been I've been ambushed far more times than uh than than I think anybody should be. Yeah, and, and this this deployment you were uh, we were talking a little bit before the show. You said it got, it got like extended way longer than a normal special operations deployment would would ever be. Yeah. Um. So, uh, Naval Special Warfare and SW, the SEAL teams are really good at some things, but logistics is not one of them. Um, and so what happened was they wanted to get us on the same rotation schedule as the ODAs, as mm-hmm. the Army guys that we were like basically trading in and out with right, after the SPs, right, right. which makes a certain amount of sense, except that they didn't account for the fact that there weren't enough planes to do this. And so it used to, it was on a like a like a staggered schedule and then they brought it together and all of a sudden like the load on the planes like there's a massive spike right here and then it drops off and so um instead of us so th- so there were like logistical challenges to, with it but then there was also the fact that we had to if you want to bring these back into back into sync somebody's got to stay extra long and that happened to be our deployment where we went from you know a regular soft deployment is six months um and uh, we were there for 11, 11 and a half months, Ooh. not a, quite a full year, but uh, like, like, like you said, makes you, uh, like you said before, makes, makes you really respect the conventional guys that go over there for 12 or 18 months. Like yeah. guys get wacky after seven, get real wacky after seven. And so like those are all hats off to anybody that stays longer than that. Yeah. And how, like, were they, did you guys know you were going to be there that long or were they extending your deployment like month by month? No, we knew, we knew, well, we knew it was going to be about 10 and a half and then the logistics ended up tacking on like an extra, like 25 days or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so we knew, we just didn't know, we just didn't really know, you know, we knew here, but not here. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, I think is like special ops guys are like wired pretty tight. And I mean, I can't imagine like deploying Rangers for 11 months. Like we, we would eat each other alive, not because like we don't like each other, but when you have like really wired, tightly wound young guys who can, they always have to be close to each other. They can never kind of, you know, get away from one another and go do their own thing. Like I can see, yeah, guys yeah. getting loopy. 
Yeah, and then and then you throw into the fact throw throw into it the fact that like it's only dudes for that entire time because you're walking <laughs> right, around right. like an Af- a rural Afghan village and you don't see women. You see guys and you see like you know black black niqabs. You you don't you don't ever see like a, a a woman. You don't interact with them at all. And so it's eleven months just dudes. It's just a massive sausage fest. Yeah. Now. <laughs> Being that you guys were doing VSOs, did they set you up for success? Not not just the Navy and not just the SEALs, but the military in general. Did they send you guys like PRT teams and other like support elements to to help with that process? So the only interaction I had with the PRT was because we moved we moved from where we were down south into uh, Nick into Trora into the and there was a an Australian fob there, Fob Mirwise. And at that Australian FOB, there was an Army PRT team there. So that was the only reason, like, we had had that connection. It was just a pure, like, geographical luck. Um, no, no. Um, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that the, I don't think that anybody really understood exactly what we were doing. Um, it was kind of one of those situations where we're given sort of a mission, sort of um and not really a reason for it and just like okay now 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 go like before i remember this i remember this very clearly i will never forget this before we deployed we were it was the the wardroom was having a conversation about this and so all the all the officers together and the xo was leading it and somebody asked why are we going like what are we like what is what is the reason What's the we mission? want a mission a reason for the mission like like it's the question right like what is the motivation behind all of this like what is our goal and the my xo said something to the effect of because we're already there and if we don't keep going we will lose face yikes for is and that for that, the he was honest he was honest that, though <laughs> is that for naval special warfare or the or the military in general was he speaking for he was speaking for us, the platoons that were deploying from SEAL team to mm-hmm. to the war zone. But when you go in, and I actually I I actually think um, that the problems my platoon had in combat, you can dr- trace directly to what the XO said. Like he wasn't wrong in retrospect, unfortunately. Um, but I, when you frame it like that. Mm. And then you're put into a situation where bullets are crossing over your head and you have no idea what's going on. And your reason for being there is to save face, whatever the fuck that means. Right. Um, it, it, it robs, it robs you of courage. It right. robs you of purpose. What? And right. um, I, I think that that was part of the problem. What was one for people who might not know, we've talked about this on the show before, but uh, can you tell us what village stability operations are, and can you tell us, like, what you guys were outside the general definition, what you guys were supposed to do? Yeah. Um, so, village stability operations is basically, as far as I understand it, and there are people out there who understand this a lot better than I do. Um, it's going into a place that is unstable, is unfriendly, hostile area and winning over the locals um it's you know a part of the, part of the coin strategy it's one of david petraeus's genius things that that, that uh, 
at, at the time was considered the gospel. This is how you do it. Um, and the idea was to go into a, we go into a place that doesn't want us to be there, show them that we're cool. Um, and that we're actually there to help. And then somehow they think that the, uh, national government, which they don't recognize really as anything other than corrupt is good. Um, and what that, what that turned into was us doing presence patrols and having like shuras you know meetings mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. tribal elders and like the district governor and that sort of thing to try to talk about stuff um but and, and i say it glibly because that is basically the that's basically the only goal like it didn't get any more specific than that it didn't get more strategic than that it was being put into a situation where there's like there's really no winning uh, I don't know what win criteria it looks like other than like all of a sudden the Afghans giving up self-respect, which they will not do. Right. Um, because they are, they are some hard people and, and I respect, I respect the crap out of them actually. Like some of the best people I worked with while I was in Afghanistan were Afghanis. Um, and, and that's like not, that's, yeah, that's, that's no bullshit. That's very true. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, so we didn't really have, we didn't really like, we basically were like, choose your own adventure, choose your own mission. And when you combine that with the 11 month appointment and the purposelessness, and then the guys that really wanted to be direct, you know, wanted to be kicking in doors, like you can see these things sort of like mixed together, the incentive structure, like you're set up for, um, uh, for, for, for failure, basically. Right. Um, no, I, I, sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, oh, you're the, good. the war was kind of set up that way, right? Like, there weren't mm -hmm. metrics for victory. Like, a VSO would be great if there was any metric to measure how how much yeah, success there, there, there has to be. Like, we want, you know, there's an overall campaign plan for 10 years. We want Dave's platoon to accomplish this little chunk of it and then hand it off to the next platoon that does their little piece. And if that isn't there, then, yeah, you're out flapping yeah and and there's i mean there's there's a couple of things that come to mind there uh one is like the handover every platoon is like very was like very different the people that you would turn over with would be like oh forget all the stuff you've been doing we're doing this thing instead because <laughs> right. they'd have different ideas and right. so like there was no progress it was just a churn just a six like a just a churn uh and then like dave you brought up you brought up metrics well uh I'm sure you've seen this too. Like the, the metrics that move up the chain, like the math doesn't add up right. <laughs> ever, right. ever. I so I spent the last two and a half, two months, two months of my uh, of, of my Afghanistan deployment at Siege of Sodif, like working in the jock. Um, it was a great place to have like a nervous meltdown, <laughs> which is like which is basically what happened. I like crashed hard. But while I was there, it was like there was this. There would be a there was like an army an army major came in to like be a like he was a reservist. He was on staff there, and his entire job was to measure the like number of Afghans that signed up for ALP, and then brief the colonel every day on that. That was his job. He was there for a month and a half, and when he left, he got a fucking bronze star. Right. But like, but also right. the numbers that the numbers that he was reporting. Like none of those were real. And then they get inflated there and they get inflated there and they get inflated there. And like when people ask me and I, I don't have any deep like on the ground knowledge about this, but when they ask me about like, Hey, how did like, how did our withdrawal from Afghanistan made you feel, make you feel like, how did, like, why did that happen? What do you think? I'm like, well, 
I don't know all of the things about it, but I do know that that I wouldn't necessarily blame the people at the very top because they were getting some garbage fiction information. Yep, like right. they were probably told that everything was fucking perfect. Um, and it's because the incentive structure is in place, right? Like right. the incentive is to deliver to deliver good news. Right. I, I think there's a yeah, there's this bizarre a situation where there, there were a lot of people, uh, including very smart people who I respect, who thought the Afghan government was going to hold out a lot longer. But I, as I said at the time, I was like, man, you could have talked to any private who was deployed over there and they could have told you exactly how this would have went down. I mean, wh why are why are you surprised, but not them? You know, something is really, really wrong here. Yeah, that's ex that, dude. That is almost exactly what I, what I like. My, my short answer is like, were you surprised? I'm like, no. Anybody who has Af who ha who still has Afghan dust on some of the on a pair of their boots, like not a single one of those people is surprised at what happened. Mm. Yeah, and, and so as time went on on the, on this uh, you know deployment, um, what you mentioned a little bit about the guys getting loopy and stuff, and I, I I'm not going to jump right to apocalypse now uh, analogies, but I mean, I mean, what what was the effect like on your platoon and on your boys as, as time went on? Yeah, so there were there were a couple of scenarios where I sort of being a young officer, like I lost I lost the popularity contest, mm -hmm. um, and that was the only thing that a JO had to stand on without the like express endorsement of the OIC, and um, so I sort of it did become a little uh, a, a little heart of darknessy um, in, in that all of these things were sort of spiraling out of control and there was like, not, there's like nothing that I could do. Um, and, and, you know, I still blame myself for that, but I also recognize like, I, I there's nothing I could do. Um, but like, like the, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go into like crazy detail, but uh, you know, the uh, local pharmacy was definitely visited quite a bit. Mm. Um, there was a lot, there was a lot of alcohol. I don't even know where it came from. Um, and, and, and mostly it was like those things mixed with boredom that led us on some, like some completely made up, like there was, there were completely made up like storylines in like what's going on in the Valley. Um, and I had no idea where it was coming from. I was also the only person in my platoon that learned how to speak the language. Like by the time I left there, um, the Pashto was okay, but my, uh, my diary was actually like quite quite legit like i i could act as a as a as a turp as a turp in a pinch wow. um with our with our cmrg uh, just because i spent a lot of time with them i spent a ton of time with them i ate dinner with our with our partner force like every night um i got to i got to know i got to know them i got to know about their families and that was like one of one of the most rewarding parts and if i could go back and do it again one of the things i would do is i would i would learn more from them yeah i would spend more time i would spend more time there and like invest more but um yeah. So like I had more of an ear to ground than anybody else just because I could understand because I had I had the only one who had ears that were actually listening. Um, and some of these storylines that are, you know, uh, human guys were, were coming up with. I, I don't think they were real and I don't think that they recognized that they weren't real. I think they were just really bored and looking for a story, you know, like looking for, looking for a purpose. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you look look at the clouds, and you can see you can pick out you can pick out a dozen different animals, right? You can see Mona Lisa in a cinnamon roll, and so they were seeing Mona Lisa in a cinnamon roll, except for that it was bad guys. You know, it was that the, the real bad Talibs are over here, uh, and there were some there there were some like low level combatants, 
in, in our area, definitely, for sure. Um, but like Mullah Omar wasn't there. We were, we weren't getting any HVIs right, right. where we were sitting. You know, there's been a lot of talk about culture problems in the SEALs and, and yeah. that there, there might be some influence there, but also it's, it's also, I think, important to respect the fact that you, what you've got on the ground there are pipe hitters, right? Yeah. Dudes yes. who have yes. gone through some of the, most, the wrong place. Yeah. They, they, they've gone through some of the most arduous training that the U.S. has to offer, that the world has to offer. Um, and, and they, they, like you say, they're, a lot of them are break glass in case of war type guys. And then you put them in a place with a nebulous mission with not a lot of support and they want to do their job. Yes. No, that's, that's a hundred, that's a hundred percent. Right. Like it is, I, I don't, even though, even though some of the, many of the failings were the people, the, you know, the men on the ground, I'm a parent. Right. And like, what do you do? You know, that, not to get like paternalistic about this, but like, that's what, what do you, what do you do? for your kids? Do you put them in a situation where they're guaranteed to fail or do you set them up for success? Right. And, and I don't think that anybody inside NSW knew how to set up the SEAL teams for success for this particular mission set because nobody, nobody had done it. Right. Um, and it wasn't anything that we had ever really trained for. It wasn't anything that people are like, you know, if you go be a green beret, right. You know that you're going to be doing fit. That's what you do. Like, you know, that that's part of it. And so even if it's not your favorite part of it, you, it's it's taken as a as a, as a given, and you know the SEAL teams are all about you know, uh, you know, special reconnaissance, direct action, and maritime ops. Like those are the things that guys become frogmen for. Right. Um, and and I, that's why I became a frogman because I wanted to do those things because those are fun. Um, so yeah, no, it, it's it, it's it, it's like a the incentives were just aligned. Yeah, the incentives right. and the context were just like poorly aligned. And, and to be fair. Even a lot of the special forces guys in Iraq and Afghanistan didn't want to do the FID mission, mm-hmm. the foreign internal defense. Yeah. They wanted to be door kickers too. Like door kicking is sexy. That's what everybody wanted to do. Good metrics. And and it, it also it briefs a lot better. Metrics. Like you can definitely brief. Yeah, you can definitely brief how many bodies you stacked. Right? Much better yeah. than you can how many people joined, what was it, the ALP or yeah. Right. Yeah. It was a, the Afghan local police, right? Yeah. No, it's a, you're, it's a hundred percent, which is why, which is why you would also get fake data going up about the ALP stuff. It's like, what else do we have measure? Like we, we talked to some people today and tried to get them to, you know, talk to these other people. Right. Right. Yeah. To, uh, to snitch on, on locals who would kill them as soon as uh, we left. I'm uh, I, I, I'm more familiar with the army side and obviously you're way more familiar with the Navy side, but I'll, I'll just say this based on, you know, a lot of the people I've talked to that this isn't to excuse bad behavior. Um, you know, grown men make decisions um, and some of them are bad. But the flip side to that is that we deployed a lot of soldiers to a lot of bad places and just sort of left them out there flapping and did that over and over again. They would lose some teammates out there in firefights. And those yep. teams just got left out there. And that right around that time is when you start getting problems with the fentanyl and things like that going on. And truth be told, a lot of commanders, a lot of commanders built their careers on the backs of those guys 
who were just rode hard and uh and now you know we we all know these guys you know dave um who are really struggling and, and having a hard time and and that's the, that's the other side of the story that that needs to be mentioned i think when we talk about the war yeah no for sure um yeah it, it, you know you're you're totally right you're 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 absolutely right um and like i don't think anybody comes away from a situation like that like being le left out to flap it, it, unscathed at, at all um the uh the guys that were doing these like that were like making up ops or like trying to find it was because they were trying so hard to do the job that they were trained to do right, right. like it's it's just like uh you know it's, it's just like taking taking an attack dog and like asking them to be a family pet right you're, like, it's you're, not it's you're, just, yeah it's you're just, in a war zone and you want to you want to get some yeah, I mean the thing that you've been training for for years, for you know, you know, close to close to a decade in some cases before like having had the opportunity. You get there and you're like, this is way too nebulous. I don't understand it. I'm going to try to make sense of this, and I'm going to you know put this round you know square peg in a round hole. So for for sure, um, and and I think Jack like something something you said about the uh, you know the guys that come back and and have trouble like it's not always it's also not all, always the guys that you think. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. which, which, which is like one of those things that, that catches, catches you off guard real, real, like really hard sometimes. Um, like I can't, I came back and like, truth be told, I was pretty, I was, I was pretty messed up for a time after like, uh, for, from some of the things that, that happened there, there was a, uh, you know, a 10 year old kid that blew himself up. Um, and we're, you know, pulling pieces of his bones out of the, an Australian civilians, um, like body before we medevaced him out. And then I got, and then I got written up because we did that um, in uh, in PT gear because we were working out when the when the kid blew himself up and we ran outside of Bob Mirwise in our PT gear because we were in the gym, um, and then we got got written up for um, having been outside the wire in uh, the wrong uniform. So like these things were just like completely traumatic, and then like your team like their their only response is like not hey good job you saved this dude's life, uh, you know you 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 got all these guys medevaced when the Aussies couldn't leave the wire. Um, no, the, the only response to that was like, fuck you, fuck you for doing it. Yeah. Fuck you for doing it in shorts, Dave. What? Um, yeah. So like you, you come back from that and you're like, I don't even, I don't even know what you just drink, drink a lot. Out of curiosity, was that yeah. NSW that wrote you up or the army that wrote you up? Cause that sounds like an army. Write -up. <laughs> yeah, it does. Doesn't it? That yeah. Was, that was, that was my, that was my, that was my very own, uh, command. That was my very own command. Yeah, they, uh, um, my the CEO had been at the White House. He was like a some sort of fancy fancy highfalutin fellow there for a couple of months, I think. Um, and uh, he's like, at my last job, you know, you have to do you have to do everything as though the New York Times is there, um, as in the New York Times is going to take a picture of you. David like, Phillips okay. is out on patrol with you guys. Yeah, dude. And you know what? If David Phillips had been out on patrol, you know what the fucking headline would have been? Like, SEALs save Australian civilian lives. Like, like that's, that's what the head time would have been. That's what shit. happened. We were in a, yeah, we were in a yeah. shorts. Right, right. That's That, that would have been the, but, but in his view, it was irresponsible to be outside the wire, uh, not in the proper uniform, regardless of context. And so Dave gets a non-punitive letter of caution and, you know, all of these things. Oh, my God. Um, that, yeah, that... so like... That must have just been soul crushing, though. Dude, 
Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I that between that and a, a couple of other situations where, uh, you know, friends, you know, friends, friends of mine died. Um, and then, uh, yeah, be, between those, those, those things, I came back and I was like, I was also not well. Um, and it was no, nobody really, really knew, um, talking to people afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, but there, there were some, there were some dark times when I was driving way too fast or we were jumping and I was pulling way lower than my skill set. Like said was wise, you know, test testing fate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, chasing that, that dragon. Time, you said you, there are these, um, uh, teammates or, or Afghan teammates that you, that you were talking about that, uh, in that case, Afghan teammates. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it, it's important to point out too, because I think a lot of Americans don't understand for those of us who worked with Afghans closely, like how closely, like you shared meals with them. You were, they were, they were like your friend, like any other person. And to lose them yes. was the same as losing any other friend. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it, it was, it was no different. It was no different except for the one, the one aspect was that I knew these Afghans a lot better than everybody else did. Cause I literally, I, every meal, I, I would be over there. I'd be over there between meals, having tea with them talking because I, you know, I was with my notebook trying to learn the language. This was like what I, you know, I, this is the, the mini, you know, this is the mini task I gave myself. Like, okay, what is part of VSO? What's part of coin? Like, well, I can't do any of these things if I can't communicate with the people. So like, but let's take this time. It's, it's, it's free immersion. Right. Um, and so I, yeah, I was over there all the time. And so when, when like, um, uh, Muhammad Kanbar died, one of, one of my friends, um, uh, I also felt like I was the only one who like the, the only one of us who like knew how to mourn him. Nobody else knew how many kids he had. Nobody else knew what his wife's name was. Nobody knew how he took his tea. Like I knew all these things. And so, um, like, I, you know, you, you, I almost took more of it on myself because I knew nobody else would care as much as I did. And like, maybe that's not, that's actually, that's not emotionally, it's not like health, like a healthy response, but it is absolutely what happened. So yeah, like I, it was just as hard as losing any other friends. Yeah. Um, did you, do you have some good times over there in those, in those 10 and a half months? Totally. Totally. Um, can, and, and again, go ahead. I was just going to say, can you tell us about Yeah. Some? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, some, some of the things were, I mean, they were, they're like the, the good times and the, and the bad were mixed in, mixed in a lot, but I honestly, the time I spent with, with the Afghans learning how to cook, you know, learning how to cook okra the way they do learning about like how they, how they're growing the, the poppies and the almonds. Like I'm a big agriculture nerd. I'm a pretty, pretty passionate gardener. Um, and, uh, that was like where I kind of picked up the curiosity about that. Cause I started asking questions because like, what else is there to talk about? Like, in this place it's beautiful but like tell me about what's going on and then i started seeing like how sophisticated a lot of the things were um so there were a lot of i think the best parts of it were one knowing what happens what i do when i get shot at like that was one thing that i had like i wanted to know for myself and i would say that's a, that's a that's a high point to find out that like you can actually perform when you're being shot at right um it, but the, the the rest of the rewarding stuff was getting this like really deep exposure to like a really different kind of people and finding the things that are like really, really impressive about them. Like Afghans don't complain. 
Uh, I remember this one time we were on like a seven hour drive and this entire valley we were going down looked like the moon. Like it looked like Mars from, uh, from, from, it, it looked like Mars. There was not a single living thing. And we're driving for basically all day. And we're just like miserable in the back of our Hiluxes doing this. And halfway there, there's this old guy, old Afghan guy with a sheet thrown over his back with some stuff in it, just walking. Like we've been driving for five hours. We're going to drive for another five hours, something like that. And there's nothing in between those two spots. So you okay. know that that's where he's going. He might be walking there for like six days. And was there like pity like on, or like misery on his face? No, he was just doing what he was doing. And, and like, I will never remember, like I'll never forget driving by that guy and just seeing, seeing his face. Like he was just like, no, this is just, this is just what I'm doing. I'm like, man, that old man is harder than any of us will ever be. Yeah. And we think we're tough. And you look at them and you're like, no, we're, we're nothing. We're nothing. And there's a, like other perspective shifting moments where we were there um, during Ramadan. And so like during, during the day, the families, and basically everybody would just be kind of like sitting out on the walls in the village, socializing blankets down tea, like, no, not tea, but like, uh, you know, blankets down, just hanging out, socializing in shade. Um, and we were walking by and I remember one of my guys goes like, starts talking, talking shit about how lazy they are. I'm like, lazy they're living a beautiful life right now they're sitting around hanging out with the only people in the world that matter to them worrying about nothing mm -hmm. <laughs> like there's like there's like moments where i was like oh shit like these people actually have some have some things figured out that we could probably learn from like mm -hmm. we could take we could take some of these lessons um so like i i think that those and like and, and the relationships i built with the Afghan with the Afghans that we were working with and also like with my with my illegal interpreter um that uh like were, were really wonderful like and by say when I say illegal interpreter he this was a guy that got pinged by the CI by uh army counterintelligence and like he got blacklisted and I was trying to figure out why because he like it happened before we got there turns out Max my interpreter had um had some physical relations with the CI guy's girlfriend so, so, so Max got blacklisted because he was too charming. <laughs> That'll happen. And yep, that does happen. And, uh, so, uh, um, I, I paid him off the books, uh, cause he was really good and I could tell. Um, so yeah, like lots, lots of like really wonderful perspective altering things. I think that's like, um, that, that's the, that's the biggest thing is there's a lot of, a lot of really foreign experiences that I was able to integrate while, while I was there that I, I really like appreciate still. So how did that mesh with a community? And I'm going to talk about seals, but, but kind of any direct action element, you know, I speak five, five, six, right? That's, that's the, uh, the mantra. I speak five, five, six and seven, six, two. Um, like, were you sort of a, a, a an odd duck or did you yes. Okay. There were a couple of people who kind of got it, but didn't really like invest in it as much. And then there were a lot of guys that were completely uninterested. So I'd be spent, I'd spend all day over with the CMRG, the civil mind reduction group guys, our partner force or 1208 force. Um, and they, you know, they'd be playing, playing video games, getting ready for the thing that we we're going to go do that night. Um, and so I think, I think mostly you guys just missed out on some like really extraordinary experiences. And, and, um, but yeah, it was, I was definitely, I was definitely the, odd, like an odd duck for, for that. 
um, at least in, in my, inside my context. Yeah. And in terms of missions, I know you, you said that like guys were going after whatever they could get. And we've, we've all seen that before where ops are driving Intel and mm -hmm. you know, where we just, we want to get outside the wire. Did you guys, yeah. did you guys have any successful missions or missions that you would consider successful? Um, we did, we did have a couple, we, we did a couple of things. Um, I think the biggest actual impact that we, that we had while we were there was, um, there was part of, there was part of the Valley where, where all of the hostile activity was coming from guys putting out, mostly guys putting out, um, IEDs, but also the guy, the guys were shooting at us, et cetera. They would, um, and so we took a bunch of, we took a bunch of HESCOs. And we basically built a wall across a narrow point of this valley, uh, this area called Niazi, and um, put ALP checkpoints there, basically to control, you know, personnel movement up up and down the valley. Um, and the moment that got, well, actually, the moment it got started, but definitely the moment it finished, um, it was a massive, massive change in the amount of IDs being found, amount of hostile activity that was going on in the area of the area we were. Um, there's a book called, I think it's called something like in the warlord's shadow. Um, there's a chapter about this yeah, actually, uh, in, green. in his book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Green. Yeah. Um, so he came, he came out, um, and, and saw, saw the great, the great wall of Chora. Um, so I think that was probably the platoon's like most successful, uh, contribution, but at the same time, I'm also quite certain that a year, a year later, like it was no longer, it was probably no longer a thing. Mm -hmm. Something like a train, a transient victory, but definitely something in the right vein. And so, how did this deployment start to wind down as you, you get towards the end? You said you got extended because of the logistics issues. I mean, what was it like? The you know, as we wind, wind down that last month or so. Yeah. So the last month or so, I was already at Siege of Sodaf. The Sodaf, yeah. So i i didn't see I didn't see like the the platoon the platoon takedown the the platoon handover. Um, so I, I, I couldn't say what the platoon was like. Um, I could say that I was, um, I was just working out to stay sane. And that was like all I was focused on. Because of what you're trying, trying, because what you were seeing trying not to get yelled at. was a little disturbing. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that, there was, there was the starting to sort of process or not process the things that I had seen before and like the things that had happened. But then there's also, um, you know, watching live feed of guys, you know, really well, um, Hilo getting shot down. Right. And then seeing that, seeing the, you know, the, the paras go, go in and check them out and just holding your breath, waiting for them to say that there are survivors and there aren't. Yeah. Um, you know, Dave Warson and Pat Feeks were two friends of mine. I went to Bods with Dave Warson and, uh, you know, his set, his 47 got shot down. And I was like, I had to go wake up guy who was in his platoon, who was like my nighttime counterpart to go tell him that, Hey, they, Dave, Dave and Pat are gone. And so, um, yeah, like the, the, the Sodaf was a, CJ Sodaf was a, was an odd place. I read for the first time, I read catch 22 there, which was an, an interesting choice because like, uh, there's this line in catch 22 where he goes, uh, you know, the work we do here is not very important, but it's extremely important that people know we do quite a lot of it. And like doing after action PowerPoint slides. So the Colonel can see what the tick was shaped like, like 
definitely like there were, it was a little too close to home for me. I probably wouldn't recommend somebody to read Catch Twenty Two working on a uh, like a, a a jock staff like that. <laughs> and also, also it was run by the army and uh, Sergeant Majors and I um, see very very differently when it comes to uh, military regulations. Like oh, sure. uh, sunglasses on the head, sunglasses on the head, wrong colors of socks, these sort of things. I'm like, you guys are. You guys are you guys are Green Beret Sergeant Majors. You're not Sergeant's Major. You're not supposed to be like this. And like, oh, we still went to Sergeant Major School. Like, we had to pick a thing. <laughs> right, right, right. And fuck and fucking with Seal JOs. That's our thing. Right. Yeah. I, uh, that's why I wondered about <clears throat> your write up because it very much sounds like a uh, an army write up and not a uh, you know. Uh, how yeah, was well, your re- how was your relationship with naval special warfare and the military in general? at this point in time and, and particularly after you getting written up like that? Great question. Uh, my, my, my relationship was fuck all these guys. I'm getting out as soon as I can. And so when I came back, when we got back to Virginia beach, well, we went to, we, we stayed for, they made a stop over in like Atlantic city, Maryland or something uh, for, for a day for our decompression stop. And all of us were pissed. We're like, our families are four hours away and you're right. going to make us stay here. Right. Right. Um, so we, we did that. And I came, I came back and basically like spent the, my wife picked me up. She didn't recognize me. Cause I, when I left, I was 170 pounds. And when I got back, cause I'd been lifting so much the entire time, I was 225, 230. Holy so shit. I, put on, I, I put on, I put on a large dog over the, over the, uh, deployment. And so she, and between that and like, uh, you know, the, the, the change, the change in here that lasted for years. Um, she didn't even recognize me. I got off the bus, I got off the bus and she like looked right past me waiting for me to get off the bus. Um, but I basically like my relationship with NSW was I slept on my buddy's couch for three, four days until I could get all my gear turned in, signed off. And then I drove immediately across country to get away from that place before everybody, before, before we got back. And my plan was to go, I took hard fill orders to this place called support activity where like nobody wanted to go because it was like an Intel op- operation. It was not door kicking. It was explicitly not door kicking. Um, and nobody wanted to go there. And my only goal was to get out of Virginia and to San Diego. Cause I needed, I needed, I needed a fresh start um, for the, for the last bit of my career. And so I took these hard fill orders to go to San Diego. Um, and my plan was to just do my, I, I owed 14 months or something like that. Uh, so my plan was to just get out, get out at my like minimum commitment and like move on with my life and pretend I'd never done it. Um, and then right before, so I had my letter of resignation and, and right before that was going to take effect, um, a new CEO came in to, um, support activity, uh, a guy named Mike Weiscott, best officer I've ever worked for in my entire life. Like he was spectacular, right? Humble. And like, he was wonderful and absolutely like, incredible leader, very soft touch, um, but extremely, extremely high EQ. Um, and, uh, I, t- I, I went in to introduce myself cause I had already taken over this, um, this tech shop at this command. And, um, after five minutes of talking to him, I'm like, Hey, sir, I, I know I have my letter of resignation in. He's like, yeah, I heard, I heard. Um, I was like, I'll pull it if you want me to keep doing this. Cause I'll work for you. And so I did. And ended up doing, ended up staying there for five and a half years on two-year orders, which is unheard of in NSW. I basically stashed myself into a warrant officer billet so that uh, the detailers would sort of leave me alone. Um, and then had 
like the best, this was like, when I got there, when I got the support activity, I was, I was done. I, I wanted nothing to do. I didn't want to wear, I didn't wear, wear a uniform. Um, I didn't, I don't want to have anything to do with NSW. And the next like five years were the, were so good. The, like the, the time there was so good after, after, after Mike showed up and like started transforming the command and like being, being a really, like a, a really exemplary leader. Um, uh, it was best, best job I've ever had, like hands down. Uh, and the best part was like, you know, sometimes the stars align, uh, you know, everything from our 06 down to the E, like my E6 LPO, everybody was like the best at that particular thing, mm-hmm. uh, that I've ever worked with. And I'll never, I'll, I'll always be grateful to my chief, this guy named uh, Chuck Broadway. He's actually an IT chief. So like he had been doing, he'd been doing like tech ops stuff at, uh, at dev group at gold squadron, and then came over to SA to lead the tech ops troop, um, where we were, which is what I was, I was in charge. So he's my chief. And he's like, guys, like soak this in because like, this is a, this is a shot. This is a, this is a lightning striking. This is like a once in a, once in a career opportunity, like enjoy this because it will never be this good again. And he said this on a regular basis. And we always like, Chuck, Chuck, come on. I am so grateful to him for having said that because I did. And it was, it was hands down. Like it, that, that stint building tech with a bunch of ETs and ITs for NSW um, was, was the highlight of my career and completely changed like the, the, the valence of my opinion of my, of my time spent in NSW. You know, we talked about. Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say, um, if you can dive a little bit deeper into that and tell us about what uh, the intelligence support activity in this Intel Fusion team was like. What were you guys doing? What was the job there? And, and what was it when you got there? And then how did it change under the new CO? Yeah, those are um, so. The the command is now called Special Reconnaissance Team, and it's a it's an Intel Fusion command. There's I'm going to get this wrong because it was always changed. It was, there was more than a dozen different rates there. So basically every branch of intelligence there, there, so there's Humanters, SIGINT, UAS, Intel, Intel guys, uh, and women, um, really, really incredible, um, uh, Intel capability, uh, me talk and then seals and a bunch of other rates, all, all kind of ETs and ITs that were working for me, um, all come together, build up their individual skills. And then they, joined together sort of a couple from each of these disciplines, each of the pillars into this cross-functional team, which then does a workup and deploys forward and builds Intel packages. Um, when I got there, it was essentially a place where team guys would only go to it. Like it was, it was the place to go because you weren't going to do any work. Um, and like you would park old guys on their way out like, while they're doing their medical, right? Like they would do terminal leave out of SA because that was, that was just the only people you could get there. Um, at, at one point, the CFT deployed in Iraq was was responsible for something like something insane, like ninety five percent of all the like successful kinetic strikes in in Iraq during their deployment. So like it tra- it went from it went from this place where you park old guys to like this incredibly high performing team that is now it's it's a screening command. Like it's it's actually really it's really difficult to get there now because it is such a great mission. It's like the I consider it kind of the future of NSW mm-hmm. um, because frogmen are not going to like, you're, you're not going to go sit up on a hill. Oh, like in a, in a peer peer conflict and like poop in a bag and send like radio messages back 
back home. Like that radio is going to get picked up immediately. They've got, there's imagery and all these sensors that are one going to do a better job of reporting what's actually there than you are. And, and two, like what you, you'd never risk a human for this, for this op. So like it really became in my mind, like the future of NSW, like seals are, I almost feel like seals are, uh, not the past, but they're not, the, they're not necessarily like the tip of the spear future because of the way the world has changed. And so this place became that. And, and it was, you credited it pretty much to this CEO who came in and changed the culture. So there were, so there were, um, there were, there were, there was a lot of context and a lot of like other, other things that also had to happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say without, without the, the, without, without Commander Wise Cup and without his XO Dave Duke out, who's all, again, one of the, he's by far the best XO like that I, that I could have imagined for that point. Um, and then the XO that came off after him, Chris Kelly was also spectacular. So we had like this trifecta of leadership and the enlisted leadership was also incredibly, like incredibly high quality. And so, all of them together, um, yeah, it completely transformed the command. It became it, be, it became a place where, uh, you know, the, the CEO would actually like walk around. He had this he had this thing where he would walk around and he had a notebook with everybody's name with everybody's information in it, so that he could kind of keep it was almost like a like an internal CRM, so that he could make sure that he like connected with people that needed it. Like he would. Here's a perfect example. My daughter, my youngest, my youngest child, was turning one. She was big into Peppa Pig. I'm not sure if you guys know Peppa Pig. Oh, yes. But, uh, okay. All right. So she was massively into Peppa Pig. Well, <laughs> uh, Mike, Mike and his wife showed up to the birthday party. We didn't invite them because it was like kind of inappropriate, but they showed, they swung by to drop off a present. And it was a Peppa Pig book. And they knew this because he had overheard me talking to somebody else about how my daughter loves Peppa Pig. But he took it, he took that, like overhearing a conversation and turned it into this like really wonderful gesture. Um, that like, like, man, once you should, once, once you show that, like, you care about my children, like that's, that's it for me. That's like my one bar. Like if you get, get over that bar, like I'm willing to forgive a lot of things, um, for somebody that like somebody that cares for my kids, because like, that's, you know, we're dad, we're dads. Right. Um, and so he, imagine that, but like, it wasn't that I was special. It was that he did this a lot in a lot of different cases, somebody graduated college, like he would call it out at commit like at, at quarters, like it was, it was very human. And so people feel felt seen and connected to the mission. And when you feel seen connected to the mission, given the resources to do your, do, do your job well, um, it, it, it sort of lights, lights things on fire. And for a while there, it was like, it was like riding a rocket ship for all of the things that were going on at the command because of this, because everybody felt like empowered and like they belonged. Um, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, like in this, in the, in the teams, there's this tendency, like frogmen are here, techs and enablers are here, second class, third class citizens, maybe, um, for a while there, it wasn't like that. It was just like team. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, I think that was really the secret, like, like that was the end result there was that everybody was just part of the team, just pulling. It's interesting, too, because it seems like you experience like the two extremes yeah. of the military, right? <laughs> that so many people yeah, have, yeah. they have, they hate the military because they had bad leadership. And, and, and then you have people who love the military because they had great leadership. And even if they were in the same units, their experiences were completely different. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I actually am like really grateful 
for in a way grateful for the, the negative experiences because it's uh it's one of those things like until you've been down really far like you can't really put a found you, you have to dig before you put a foundation down right and like right. i dug i dug and then we put in a, a, a pretty solid foundation and like i don't think that i would be the person i am without having gone through the the really bad things um you know there's post-traumatic stress disorder but there's also post-traumatic growth right and like sometimes one comes out of the other um and I feel I feel like that um, they, that the fact that the second half of my career was so incredibly restorative uh, gave me like gave me the the, the context the, the strength the perspective to sort of to understand the the first part better. So you're running this tech shop before he shows up, yeah. and then you're running this yeah. tech shop after he shows up. What what did that look like here for you? How did that change? How did that tech shop change? the the tech shop changed it was partly partly because of him and partly because of the uh, like i said the 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 new xo that came in um the there was a i think that what happened was that there was a change of the entire character of the place where all of a sudden the things that we were trying to do the suggestions that we were making about, hey, we could do this op instead of doing it with that guy. Why don't we do it with this thing that we can build? Um, like we we became an equal seat at the table, uh -huh. um, and and that showed uh, that gave us the ability to the opportunity to prove to prove that what we were doing was actually valuable. That it was sometimes better to send um, you know a piece of technology than two guys on a jet ski with a backpack. Uh, the risk, the risk calculation there is not not the same. Um, and if you can show that you can get the job done with one, why why risk why, why risk two guys? Honestly, um, honestly though, two guys on a on jet skis with backpacks has cool. so much cool factor that <laughs> the guys who want to do it are going to argue for it all day long. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and they uh, and and you know, the, not everybody was a huge fan of like, <laughs> right. of of the of of the of the new, new right. of NSW that we were pushing. Um, and and I understand that. I if I had an opportunity to go do some cool guy stuff <laughs> on a jet ski, I'd be like, hell yeah, I'm going. Right. It doesn't even matter. Right. I'm going. I'm going. Right. It's, is this stupid? Yes. Yeah. I'm right. Going. Absolutely. Right. Right. <laughs> I, could, could you talk, to, I mean, it, it, to the extent that you're able about like some of these like new technologies that you were able to integrate into the force, um, you know, I, I've been told, for instance, that NSW has actually de um, developed a really robust uh, um, drone program and it's something they've gotten very good at. Yeah, so um, that could be one of one of two things. One, there is a UAS capability out of out of, out of the command um, where, you know, scan eagles mostly. Um, uh, and then NS, if you're talking about, there's also a tech company that started by a former team guy officer and his brother, who's an AI guy called Shield AI, that is like basically like got its start at the innovation director at Warcom, Naval Special Warcom. That's our like, that's our two star command. Um, and, uh, you know, got, I believe they're funded by like Andreessen Horowitz now and, you know, all, all of those things. So it's a, it's a large company. A lot of guys that I used to work for, I used to work with now work for them. Um, so I, I'm not sure which one of those two things you're, you're, you're referencing. I'm not sure which one. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe both. Um, I've been yeah, told in general this, that they, the command has gotten pretty good with it. 
Yeah, the uh, the Scan Eagle debts um, that come out of SRT are extremely good, like really, really, really good um, and really, really valuable. Um, and while we were there, they were having such success that um, one of the admirals at the time um, was talking about how they were he wanted to take some platoons down from the teams and use that headcount to build more UAS debts. And that was like, let me tell you, like the SEAL admiral telling the SEALs like, hey, you guys are going to support the UA, the this new UAS capability, not the other way around. Um, that definitely caused some, caused some heads to spin. But I, but I think he was right. Like, that, that's how you get the missions. As as a you know, as a former tech guy going to seals and now coming back into tech in, so you know, in, in support of United States missions, I imagine you had. Uh, a bit of a different perspective because you had that background and you were an operator. Like what were some of the changes that you saw and that you see coming forward? I think that I was like the, at the beginning of this like kind of cohort of people that have like, there are a lot of guys now that have played with, you know, raspberry Pis. In, mm -hmm. in college or, or in high school. And so they bring that knowledge forward and they're not there. They're not thinking necessarily about, um, about what they get to do, but like, what's the mission and what's the best way to solve it. And can I, which of these things in my quiver can I use to solve it? Like what's the most effective thing? So, um, I think there's a lot more of that simply because of the, how, how widespread things like raspberry pies and, you know, learning, learning to code uh, to some extent, like little electronics projects, how prevalent those have become. Um, and so you get, you, you just, we started as I was leaving, there were, it started to be like a lot of new guys who were like, oh, this is awesome. What about this? What about this? What about this? And then they would come back like the next day and bring this thing that they made. They'd be like, hey, what do you guys think about this? We could do something like, like just kind of spitballing ideas. And we got some like really good operational ideas um, out of those conversations, but it started once it was known that it was a thing that would get kind of, that was like blessed off as like uh, a realm of like, this is a weapon that you can use. Um, uh, guys started coming out of the woodworks that were like playing with these things in their garages. Guys that were more passionate about it than I was. That's cool. like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't actually like massively into the tech. I was into the team, like the people and enabling these really brilliant guys that worked for me mm -hmm. um, to like do the best expression of like their best work. That was yeah. the thing that lit me on fire was not the actual tech, but there were guys coming in after me. Like I knew about it. There were guys after me that were really passionate about it and coming up is like E5s, E6s in the teams. And that's like more and more prevalent. So I, I have, you know, the, the children will save us, right? <laughs> do, do you see the special operations community at some point, you know, like where everything used to be so physical, right? And there would be teamwork, um, and, and some logical problem solving stuff. But do you ever see special operations, including almost a tech portion to their selections? You know, I don't know. Um, I, I actually, I kind of think not. I think that the way the, I, the way these things have happened in the past is, and you guys have much, much deeper, like military knowledge than like military history knowledge than I do. But it, it seems like units don't tend to morph too much. They tend to be like usurped by other things. Um, and so it's, uh, uh, I don't see like 
buds having a programming challenge. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's a thing that's ever going to happen. I think that if there comes a point where we're like, okay, we actually have too many frogmen, but we need more techs doing this thing, that'll just, that'll come out of the organic capability and it'll come with that, that load balancing of like headcounts. Um, based based on what's needed, and that's how the change will happen. Less that less that seals will, uh, you know, learn how to do commercial off the shelf electronics manipulation. Interesting. When uh, Jack and I went to DefCon, um, you know, like one of the villages or one of the rooms was like taking over a ship. Oh yeah. Uh, via you know cyber, and there were multiple ways to do it, right? And and the goal of the CTF teams was to crash the ship somehow. Um, do you see Crazy. do you see like this handshake between like seals and the tech world or or in or integrated units that are slowing down ships so they can do their shipboarding and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I think that's totally realistic. I think that's like a natural outgrowth of the sort of like Intel fusion things that are happening inside mm -hmm. NSW. Mm -hmm. And I know I know the tier tier one units got like similar things going on. Um, so yeah, I think that that makes perfect sense. Like that's just another tool in the toolbox um, for, for sure. It's fascinating. You, I mean, yeah, it using, really using cyber to enable the kinetic actions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no, my, my personal fantasy being a sci-fi nerd is uh, section nine from Ghost in the Shell where you see these people who are like, you know, they're, they're, they're government, you know, black bag operators, but at the same time, it's he they're heavily into cyber and sabotage and all these sorts of things, um, disinformation, all sort of blended into one team, which is hard to do, but it does seem like we're headed in that direction. It does. It does. I, uh, I just wonder whether there's much crossover between uh, the the but, pipe hitters who are like down for the physical part and the, the people that are drawn to like mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly because the the people I know that are like heavy hitters when it comes to DevOps and cybersecurity are would definitely not be mistaken for being a team guy right um, you know in, in any context um, so I, I wonder what the crossover is there. yeah it right. might be like a Jason Bourne thing uh, but like definitely like if that job were available I'd be like yeah I'll do that. Yeah. It sounds awesome. You know, and it, it's interesting too, because making the parallel connection, you know, I, I don't know how it is now, but there was a time when you were in trouble with Johnny Law, you know, because you were uh, a rapscallion, um, you know, you could enlist in the military and often you ended up, you know, in, in the special operations community because you already sort of had that sort of in the gray zone mentality. And yet, mm -hmm. and yet, for the kids coming, I mean, there are obviously a lot more opportunities for kids in cyber now with CTFs and hack the box and, you know, things like that. But, but the ones who are good at it still want to get out there and break shit. And, and we still haven't come to the same sort of relationship with them. I think right. in that, okay. Yeah. When you were a kid, you did some stuff you probably shouldn't have. And now you're in front of the judge and <laughs> here's a cyber route for you. Yeah, honestly, the, the only thing the only thing that jumps into my mind when you say that is one, like that would be really awesome. But two, um, that there's so many there's so many things like you can't have a criminal anything on your background to like right. go to buds now. Like like there's oh. this background like it actually like we don't we can't do that anymore, even if that's valuable, because like you know guys have to lie about having having had weed in high school one time or right. you know the, these sorts of things in order to get it or like i had an ankle sur you know, i covered up an ankle surgery when i went 
they're right. like, how any, any, any joint surgeries? Nope. Yeah. And I was right. just praying. They didn't like, they didn't like wand my ankle where there's a screw. Yeah. So like, you know, yeah. doing that with with criminal situations, like I, it, it, it feels like it, it could be a good idea, but it also feels like something that we're not going to do. Yeah. And five and a half years at this, uh, this, um, intelligence team, you decided to get yeah. out, of, out of the Navy. Uh, what was it like transitioning out of the Navy back into civilian life? Yeah, it was, um, I don't think I did a really good job at it. Uh, I think, I think a lot of guys do. I, I, I had a lot of pride that because I had done like the, you know, I'd done the startup before and I had multiple jobs. Like I was going to get out. I was going to be fine. And I actually don't think I did a very good job at it. There are a lot of things that had sort of, and I had sort of had ingrained in me. Like I, I joined when I was 22 and I got out when I was like 30, 33. So like I joined as a boy left as a man. And like you, you kind of absorb the water you're in. Like those are very, those are, those are formative, those are formative years for all of us. Right. That's why we're still talking about it. Um, yeah. But, uh, um, so there were, there were things that really, really caught me off guard. Like, uh, the first thing I did was I started a startup. Um, and the, the actual startup is ir irrelevant. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was just, it was a bad idea and I did it poorly. Um, but the, the thing I noticed is that like inside a soft community, there's a rep, there's such thing as a reputation. Like if I tell you I'm going to do something and then I don't do it, even if you and I never interact again, like, you know, some, like you and I know 500 of the same people. Right. right. And so like pe people will know very quickly that you backed out on something you said you would do. Well, the wide world is so, so just like, so, so disconnected, so wide, so, you know, dispersed that like people will regularly say like, yes, I will. Yeah. I'll, um, we, so we had one company who was like, uh, yeah, we'd love to try this, but we would want it to have this one more feature. So we spent the next two weeks crushing it to like build this one more feature, got it done. And it worked great. Exactly like they wanted. Um, couldn't get a, couldn't get an email or a call back from anybody at the company ever again. And I was like, you guys should have just said you weren't interested, right? but like it, they didn't want to, they just wanted it to sort of go away. And so I started to learn that when people tell you something, in the wide world, like it is not the same as yeah. another team guy saying, yeah, I'll do this. Um, and the other, the other thing I noticed is like one of my, one of my jobs, um, in some ways resembled the, one of my, one of my software development jobs in some ways resembled the SEAL teams in that um, it was extremely high quality people all around. Um, you know, like the, 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 the cream of the crop, it was highly selected. Um, but the, the, Thing that caught me off guard and i didn't recognize for a while is that they, they're thinking about performance and not support like if you're doing a workup with a platoon right or with a team um and one guy's having trouble with you know two-man room clearances what do you do like Train you on. stay yeah you stay late and you take care of him right because yeah. like all of you are together right that's what you do like without even thinking about it um and uh not not a lot of places are like that it's like uh, they're co-workers not teammates mm -hmm. um and so like these like those are the big like cultural shifts and i didn't even recognize it um until i went back to san diego and i was i was up late with my former lpo who's now a senior chief which always makes you feel good to see your boys like move, move it up um 
but it was like one o'clock in the morning and I was getting ready to getting ready to leave. And I asked him for some Windex to clean off the windshield in the car I had borrowed because it was dirty and it was hard to drive at night with it. And he's like, I'm not giving you Windex. I'm going to come out there and clean it with you. And then we shot the shit for 10 minutes while we cleaned up the car and gave the whole car like a little detailing for the person to let me borrow it. Um, and like, oh, I forgot about this. <laughs> I forgot about this team orientation. Like it was it was like it was like being able to like have full capacity of your lungs again. Um, and so I think those were like the two big like things with transition. Oh, I think the, the other thing is when I got out, like when, actually when I was in, you can see, but you can judge by the, uh, by the pictures I sent for the thumbnail. Uh, although D D did choose the shirtless one. So that's not, not yeah, right. our, the, the, th option the thumbnail for this video is a war crime in of itself. <laughs> a sexy war a crime. Of, yeah. Very sexy one, I but know, right? I know. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of pictures of me like working because I like internalized maybe too much, the whole silent professional mm -hmm, thing. Right. And so when I got out, you have to, you have to talk about yourself. Sure. If you don't talk about yourself, then people won't know who you are, won't know what to expect from you. Um, but it feels really, really, really awkward talking about yourself at first. At least it did for me. It took a long time for me to get comfortable with even just talking about basically, yeah, it was, a, that was, I was a seal, not the most important thing about me, but it is something. Um, so I, th I think those like those three things were like the biggest like weird transition things. We talked about that a little bit before the show. How you know, it, it, you know, guys, you know, people coming out of the military. I don't want to just say guys because guys too, but but people coming out of the military, they they tend to go one of two ways a lot of times, especially in the special operations community. They either make a living on their background, which is fine. Like if you went to Harvard, you would make a living. You, you would tell people you went to Harvard, right? I mean, it, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. But they go into the leadership or tactical or, or whatever they do, and that's who they are. And then other people try to create a, a new persona. Like they divorce themselves from it for a while. And, and maybe it's, it's because those people are maybe we're wrestling with. Yeah you know, who are we after this? Um, mm -hmm. You know, or or like, well, I don't want to say in your case because you had great experiences after that experience, but some people had really bad experiences and don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, but right. whatever it is, they divorce themselves and, and they feel, and like you say, they take the sight on professional too far where it's like, this is a part of my pedigree. It is a part of my past. Like, not maybe not the most important thing, but it's something worth mentioning, and it does yeah. open doors at times. Yeah, um, I definitely I overcorrected like the the wrong way with that. I was terrified of being the guy who's like still trying to be a seal when he's not, um, uh, and I, I've developed some empathy for that position now. I'm certainly not going to do it because it's not. It's not, it, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't feel true to me, but I definitely spent years trying to sort of like draw a line and completely reinvent myself. And it wasn't until I went back. So I went back to San Diego because, um, Bobby Ramirez, who was the CEO of, uh, SEAL team one, uh, died, um, unexpected. And this man, this is like a, a man of, inc of incredible character. Um, like universally acknowledged incredible character. In fact, you said you, you mentioned like cultural problems inside the SEAL teams. When he got um, announced as the CEO of SEAL Team One, I called him because I wanted to congratulate him, tell him like this makes me happy because even though I'm not a, a 
not in the teams anymore. I care very much about the, about the community. Like it is, you know, it's, it's part of me. Um, and so I called him to say, Hey, congratulations. Like this makes me feel good because if there's somebody I know who can help the teams turn the corner for like in, in the way that we need to right now, you're the guy, like you're the guy. So like, good, good luck. And, and like, I'm cheering for you. And so like when, when, um, yeah, we, when he died, we, there were a ton of people that came back to his, to his funeral, um, to his, or to his memorial. And it sort of conversation around beers at McPee's like this, the seal bar on Coronado talking about Bobby talking about like how life is out. We had all sort of like tried to find some way to kind of like carve up our lives. And we all sort of like realized at the same time, like the answer is not carving that part out, but it's sort of like reintegrating it. Mm -hmm. And so like that, that, that whole, that whole experience of going, going back and, you know, paying, paying our respect to a guy that to, to a man we loved. Um, and then like feeling, feeling how deeply ingrained the, traditions of NSW are and how good they feel to take part in them to like be able to show our respect for, for a, a man like Bobby. Um, it, it reminded me that like, that is actually a really, really important part of me and that I should stop trying to carve it off. Um, and that I should, and in fact, just like, let it sort of re like reintegrate it and become like a more whole, complete, honest with myself version. In fact, um, D had been after me for like, almost a year probably to like come on come on your podcast Our and I finally said yes yeah you guys you guys were, were uh, <laughs> persistent but i appreciate it because this is great um but uh the reason why i said no oh, i find it's like okay yeah like like let's let's do early march was right after bobby's thing i was like i need to like i what i didn't want to do i didn't want to talk to you guys about being a team guy too much because i didn't want that to be me right yeah. i didn't want me to be like also i felt self-conscious because you guys have some real badasses on here like some crazy badasses you guys talk to and then there's like <laughs> me like with my big bottle of water and my my real short shorts <laughs> uh, you know so like uh but, but that reintegration I, I think was like really valuable and i would i would say to people like guys that are getting out to like not try to draw the line too hard yeah, yeah, absolutely. Merging those two personalities is difficult. You, you mentioned, I, you know, I don't remember if it's during the show or before, but you know, you mentioned that you went through some sort of dark periods afterwards. Yeah. Can yeah. Can you tell us, sort of, you know, your dark night of the soul and how you found your way out of that? Yeah, um, I actually think that this is that I wrote a, I wrote a thread about it on on Twitter um, once, and I think that's how like. Jack, Jack and I first like knew that the other one existed. Um, cause it went, it, it, it was like one of those things that kind of blows up on you. Um, you know, I had like 800 people who followed me on Twitter. And then I wrote this thing about like my combat, like about all the different ways that people had seen me throughout my entire seal career. And it just exploded. I was like, I was talking to like, there were like five people that would actually talk to me before. And all of a sudden, like <laughs> I shared this like intimate thing and all of a sudden it just exploded. And I was like really, really uncomfortable with this whole situation. I almost deleted it a couple of times, but the um yeah i got i got back from uh I, I got back from deployment and i didn't i i was conflicted about a lot of things um about whether any of it mattered about whether i did the right thing when things were hard 
about whether I could have done something better and prevented some of the really bad things from happening. Um, I was drinking too much. I was drinking way too much, like two bottles of wine a day. Like it was, it was ridiculous. Um, and like right at this point, like when I started spiraling downward, my wife had her first kid. So like, you can imagine how shitty a father, how shitty a like lack of, like a lack of husband I was. I was, a, I was a black hole over here. Like, and, and like, I, I'll, I will always regret that even though like, I recognize the reasoning, like I recognize why, um, but like, there's this something I will, I'll, I'll go to my grave regretting how, how poor a husband and like father I was when my son was first born. Um, but I, I had all of this like unprocessed everything um, and didn't know how to, didn't know what to do with it. Um, and they, you know, like I said, there were points where I was taking too many risks and, and, and all of these things. Never, never tried to kill myself, but like I definitely was like rolling the dice a little bit because mm-hmm. I was too much of a coward, right? Or maybe I knew better. Like part, part of me deeper down knew better and was like, I don't want to, but like I feel like I want to. Um, and there was this, I, I remember like the first, the first time when I realized something was off because like that's just your life. Like you just like kind of sink down and like everything around you is dark and you just think the world is dark. Like you have no perspective. Um, And there was this moment, by the way, like that feeling, the fact that I've been down in that like dark place, I think a lot of us have been like it, it is the thing that without that experience, I would not understand why people would kill themselves. Like why we have a suicide problem among, among veterans. I, I wouldn't have understood it unless I had like gone through it. Cause I'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? There's always Thailand. Like, like you can always just like go AWOL and go do like, like go like just go hedonism for like three months and then you'll probably be fine. And it's whatever happens is better than being dead. Right. Um, like that would have, that would have been my reasoning before, but now like, I recognize like, you don't see that. It's like, you're, you're just sinking and the whole world is dark. Um, and, uh, people ask like, should the, like, should NSW have done something better when you, when you came back? And, um, I can tell you that like NSW does everything it can. Like they make you talk to like six different psychs on the way back in and you lie your face off to all of them. And like, that's not their fault. Right. I, so I don't think like it's a systemic problem with like the VA or the military in general necessarily, like in that, in that context. Um, but the thing that like made me realize that something was off was, um, we had started a garden in our backyard in San Diego, kind of on an aesthetic lark. We're like, we got the spot in the, in the yard. Like, what are we going to do? All right, let's put some raised beds and plants and vegetables. Like, fuck it. It was a purely aesthetic lark. Um, and I was down in the garden. I would come home from work and I'd go down in the garden, just kind of like take care of it. And, you know, uh, with tomatoes, you pinch off the extra growth. So they put their extra energy into the actual fruit, not the plant. And I was pinching off tomatoes and like the smell hit me. And all of a sudden I was just like right there, like present. And I could breathe for a second. Like the garden was the thing that made me stop thinking about all of these other things. And it became like this meditation for me. Um, and I realized, oh wait, like there's there's something more here in the world that's not this dark shit. I should start, I should start, I should maybe start working on that. Like, I don't know how, I don't know like what what that even looks like, but you get the inkling that there's like something other than the dark place. Um, and so I sort of 
started digging out, but, and I thought I was dug out, but I wasn't like, this has happened like a dozen times. Like it's multiple steps and you always think you're done and then you're not. I think that's probably the entire story of life, right? Like you think you're digging out and then like, you're not actually, there's another thing to do. Um, I had a, uh, a, a psychiatrist, um, who probably saved my life by putting me on sleep pills for a little bit. Like I don't recommend sleeping pills for like normal situations, but like to put the, to put a net on the bottom of like to, a, to arrest a fall, like a, like a, just a, a dead fall, which I was in, like that was, that was helpful. Um, but he suggested I do like some mindfulness meditation. I was like, fuck you. I'm not doing that. That sounds stupid. And then I finally gave in and I went to this thing at Balboa and I left after about 20 minutes. Cause the dude next to me was there for this like mindfulness course because he was scared of the showers and the ships. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not like you, man. I don't want that. I don't want like, I don't want to feel like, you and I are this like dealing with the same thing. Um, and then I finally like heard it from enough people that I just decided to like go off the deep end. And I went to this 10 day silent retreat, the Pasana retreat, 10 day silent meditation retreat. And, um, it was miserable. It, it was absolutely miserable, horrible the entire time. Like I'm convinced. And at this point, by the way, like to give you a, a, a like a timeline context and like how much of a saint my wife is we had two boys at this time and she's eight months pregnant with my daughter so i go away for 10 days to like the joshua tree desert to do this like meditation (laughs) bullshit and she's at home like managing the two boys while she's like incredibly pregnant and like all of these things um so i am convinced the entire time like i'm sitting there like trying to meditate and i'm convinced absolutely convinced that by the time i go back if i stay this whole time she will have taken the kids and left. And what's more is that I will not hold, like I wouldn't hold it against her. Cause I was, like I said, I was a, I was a garbage husband and a garbage father for the, like the first, for these years when I came back. Um, and so I had to learn to sit with that. Cause I knew that she would call that she would call me out if I didn't do it. She's like, Oh, you're not even going to take care of yourself. I'm like, all right. All right. Like I'm going to sit with this. And like, so I had to like make my peace with the fact that they might leave because of things that I had done and I would deserve it. Uh, and I realized that the only thing that the only thing I had control over was that the fact that I loved them and that anything else was me expecting something in return, which is like by definition, not selfless. And so like I sat with that for like 10 days and it was, there were, it was, there were points where like your body would hurt and then all of a sudden that pain would dissolve. And then all of a sudden you get this taste in your mouth. And you're like, Oh, that's the taste of shame. Like it makes no sense sounds completely woo. I am not that guy, but like, that is the thing that happened to me. It tasted like shame. And I got back, um, drove home, drove home at the speed limit from Joshua Tree to San Diego. Like I had never driven, I hadn't driven the speed limit in half a decade. Right. Like I drove home at the speed limit and was cool with it. Uh, which I was like, that's weird, but I didn't really feel different because I had like these like changes that sort of integrated. I got home, we sat down on the couch, and after about five minutes, my wife said, Hey, I want to stop you real quick. I just want you to know that like this last like 10 days was hard managing, you know, managing the kids while she's super pregnant and all of that. She's like, but it's already been worth it. Like the change in you that I can tell in five minutes is already been worth it. Um, and so like those two things, like the gardener and that the, the garden and then that meditation retreat were like these two huge handholds for me, like kind of pulling myself up out. Well, and even the garden, uh, you know, you talk about the Vipassana and meditation, but even the garden itself, that moment was mindfulness, right? hundred percent. It was, I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. 
Um, but yeah, it was absolutely like I was present. I was yeah. experiencing things with all of my senses. I was doing something physical. Also, I think there's part of it that has to do with like when you're raising a garden, when you're growing a garden. I still, we grow a huge garden every year. Um, you know, I have chickens and all all that stuff because it's been so formative. Like it's part, it's like part of us now. Um, but like you deal with a lot of death in, you know, our former jobs. And there's something about a garden that is like helping create the conditions for life. And it feels healing, restorative in, in that way too, I think. Balance. You know, you mentioned, <clears throat> you mentioned how when you're in it, like you don't know. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, whether you're former military and you have this post-traumatic stress uh, or, or you're a civilian and you have post-traumatic stress for another reason, uh, that it's very insidious, right? That, 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 like you say, like you, you not only were probably like, not only were you lying to the shrinks, but you're probably lying to yourself mm. about, about how you felt. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Cause you don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't want to be that guy. You want to be the guy that can like push it, push it down and be stoic about it. Like nobody wants to be the guy that like is, is a hot mess, but like there were, there were definitely, there were definitely points. I think the thing, the point that I realized, another point that I realized something was wrong was that I apparently chewed somebody out, like some bosun's mate at the command. And somebody told me about it the next day and I had zero recollection of it. Like there were weeks that are, that were just complete blackout for me. And it wasn't because I was like drunk at work. I was never drunk at work ever. Um, it was just like the cortisol just hijacking my brain. Like it was like my head was in a microwave and the microwave was like on 10. Yeah. Um, and you, and like, so you don't, you know, memory is fallible under the best circumstances, but like your own perception of the world and your place in it can get so, so ungrounded um, that nothing makes sense. And things that don't make sense are the only thing that you can think of. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, in maybe, I don't know if this was your experience. But you can also look at somebody who had worse, the people in Afghanistan, the people who, you know, were no longer living, the people who lost limbs and say, yes. how can I bitch about it when right. I'm whole and healthy? hundred percent, hundred percent. Like you don't want to take like you don't want to take that away from them. Right. Like you, and, and so like, I think, I think that there's some part of the, what, one of the things that that causes people to consider um, like suicide is that they are almost scared to get help because they don't, I, I think that's a really great point, Dave. And like, it, it's also that like, they're scared to get the help, but then they also don't want to be the guy who has, you know, committed these, committed these sins or had had these problems and didn't show any, any way of way of atoning for it. So there's almost like a, like, I, I, I'm sorry, like, I'm, I feel bad about this, but I can't do anything. So like, this is, this is the only thing I can think of to do. Do we have uh, questions for Dave? Uh, let me see. Uh, Dave, also check uh, your Twitter. Cause I know people probably ask you questions uh -oh. there. Mostly they asked me to take my shirt off. I think. <laughs> well, if you want to show the pepperonis you, off, I, I mean, it's we know been, it's happened know, before. No, it's happened before. No, next I'm good. I'm next good. time, next. A, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say that's a that's another team guy cliche. Like going to a bar. Like how do you know somebody's in a bar? Like a guy's just a seal. Like oh, because he took his shirt off in the bar. <laughs> um, I was gonna say that 
next time we have you on and you're in the studio, uh, we'll make sure that you're lacking uh, lacking the good. So sense. you're you're gonna you're you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get me intoxicated, so I strip. <laughs> I understand. Okay, All right, um, that's fine. I, we don't have any supers, I don't think, but uh, no. Uh, but let, let's ask about the homesteading because that's you know that's what it what is that what does that mean and and how did you get into that? Yeah, well, so I mean, full, full qualification. I would not consider myself like a full fledged homesteader. We don't we're we're on an acre here, so we're like we have a large garden, a bunch of fruit trees. We do a bunch of like uh, you know we our food scraps go to the chickens who make compost then they use that compost and put it on the garden so we we try to like minimize our resource flows more okay. than more than like doing like practical homesteading because like i said we're not we're not on enough space to do that hopefully soon we will be but we're not right now um so that's mostly it's mostly about it's a combination of the like connection to like the real rhythms of the world like the seasons the rain, like these, these things mean different, mean different things to you. If you're growing a bunch of your own food, if you're a gardener, your relationship with the moon and the sun and the weather is like very practical and it's very, it's, it's, it's immediate. Um, and there's, there, there, there's something about that kind of grounding because like life can be really, really comfortable, almost too comfortable. And I, I like the, the fact that it, it, it gives you a, a spot to put your feet, um, and so um, the other thing is that like food supply chains are incredibly, incredibly fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, as you saw when like people were making all the Twitter jokes about like, Hey, look at these eggs I've got. I'm a billionaire. Like, um, you know, we were never short on eggs. You know, we never, we're never short on, gr- short on greens. Like if there's a E. coli outbreak at this thing. It doesn't matter. You know, we get our, we get our meat from uh, somebody down, somebody down the road who raises the pigs. Like his name's Tim. Like I know the guy, we raise the pigs that we're that we eat and we'll you know and we go to we go direct to him so we get a good deal he gets a good deal and uh like then we have a freezer freezer full of pork so like we try to keep our inputs and outputs um as as minimal as possible uh, and uh, like are you does homesteading include generally and then for you specifically include like your energy like you are you on the grid off the grid how does that work? Are you collecting illegal rainwater? That's what we really want to know. Uh, see, I, I think in Oregon, you're allowed to collect rainwater. You are. It's called, like, I know in Colorado, you're not allowed to, which <laughs> blows my mind. Yeah. Like, wow. You, don't, yeah. you can't, yeah, you can't collect rainwater there. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's absolutely nuts. You can't dig ponds there in a lot of places because you're disrupting the water flow. When actually, if you look at it, like we disrupted the water flow by killing all the beavers and like people building ponds are actually doing something good. Um, but like, the, yeah, so we're we're not off grid. We can operate like we have, we have we have a generator that can connect to the, to the propane, et cetera. So like we can we can keep our power on and uh, all, all those things. And we do most of our heating with a wood stove. Um, but we're not we're not like really legit off grid. This place is um, it's an old schoolhouse uh, built in like the eighteen eighties. So it's not well insulated. It's creaky. It's got all that. It's got all that character. But like, it would be it would be difficult to place take this place off grid, especially since there's two hundred year old Doug Firs to the south of us. So that blocks most of the summer sun on the house. So like, we can't do solar or any, anything like that either. So it's it's minimal. We're resilient, but not off grid. Gotcha. 
Um, we do have one super chat that just came in. Uh, it's from Nun. Thank you very much. Uh, Dave, thanks for sharing and keeping it real. Also, please take your shirt off. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to put out a, a thing here. Um, how about one, just one, uh, five minimum $5 super chat for Dave to pluck us a few bars of his favorite song on the uke. Oh man. That's a oh, good man, one. You make me perform. I, this is That's some, a good some one. amateur shit here. Let's man. And while we're waiting for someone to man up. Ukuleles are classic. Uh, I got a, my mandatory uh, self-promotion. Uh, remember to like, share, and subscribe to the channel. Uh, and check the link down in the description for our Patreon if you want to get access to all these episodes ad-free. Uh, Jimmy Trimble, thank you very much for the super. What's your assessment of the DOD innovation ecosystem, especially the new office of strategic capital? Any chance you venture into that? Because, sphere? yeah, you, uh, you're, you're kind of back in that realm a little bit, right? I am. That's actually a really, uh, that's a good question. Um, so for people without the con, without the, like the, the, the background context here, the biggest thing preventing the military from adopting like modern tech is the acquisition process. Yeah. It's long, it's slow. There's a shit ton of paperwork. Pretty much everything is piped through like a couple of prime vendors who have these like pipe contracts that they can like run as much money through as they want to. Um, it's not competitive. It's like, it's, it's actually really, it, I understand why it is the way it is because they have to, there's so many laws they have to do, like follow, mm -hmm. um, to keep track of all the tax dollars. But at the same time, it's absolutely insane. Um, there's been a lot of like sort of side runs around, around this, like building contracts that can then be done through, there's this place called DIU, uh, defense innovation unit. Um, it was in, uh, in Palo Alto area, mountain park area. Um, and so they basically will give you a contract that's like a pipe and then you can get money from anywhere and it can go through that pipe and go to the, go to the company. And, um, that seems to be, that was nascent when I, when I left, it was like just getting started when I got out. Um, but it's uh, actually the company, I, the company I rent code for now is actually on a bunch of contracts through DIU. Um, and it's still a process, but compared to what it was five, six years ago, it is day and night difference. And that is like blazing speed of adaptation for like the DOD. So I think that a lot of the end runs that they're making are for, for the contracting to give you the ability to like, a unit can go out and say, I want something made by this company and I want them to do it in, in X way. And here's how we pay for it. Uh, the mechanism's there now. Um, so I think, I think DOD is actually doing a reasonably good job of adapting to that. Because before, what would happen is be like, okay, I want to buy this, but the money's not going to clear for 36 months. And like, what company has 36 months of just like free runway where they're not going to cash flow anything before they're going to take their tech and they're going to go take it out in, into the civilian world? Like, so if you want something to be, even if they want to like provide their tech to DOD, like they can't. Um, and that is, that like, that's down a lot. Like you, I've seen contracts get like, companies get money in like 30, 45 days, which is absolutely nuts, like way different. Um, so I actually think the DOD's are doing a really good job at that. Yeah, there, there was a time, I mean, like we're talking about like the 90s, where what the military gave, what the military had on their shelves compared to what you could just go to REI or someplace else. And I'm not even talking tech now, 
but just basic gear. It's, it's still like that, man. Is when they, if they want to acquire a new rifle, a new machine gun. Uh, let's just I talk mean, about a sleeping bag. Let's, yeah. You know, the, you know the, the technology of a sleeping bag, right? That um, when it comes to tech, you know, it used to be that off-the-shelf purchases down at, you know, Radio Shack or whatever were better than what you could get, you know, through the military procurement system for a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, um, it's been solved for technology and specific, specifically, but I mean, when I, when I was at two, all the guy we all went out to go get multicam cries because the uniforms they gave us were one, like some weird digicam that wasn't, didn't, didn't work for the place we were going, but two, the crotch would tear out after about two weeks of wearing them. And so everybody bought cries on their own dollar. And those are, those are cheap. Yeah. But like they got outbid. Um, and we do have a taker for All the right. ukulele. ukulele uh, Let's see your skills and, and, and as I a put musical bard. Ian Hutchinson, thank you very much. I'm going to let you slide with your $5 Canadian because I don't know what that is in the U.S. <laughs> I feel Shit. like oh, we're getting ripped off here, but I don't know. Um, He's bidding with funny money. <laughs> that's right. It's like Monopoly money. <laughs> it's 47 cents. I just did the math. Doesn't count. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, yeah, shit. I don't know. Um, okay. I can't tell. Is this coming across? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's coming across? Okay. That's not. Yes. Yeah, st- stand stand up so yeah. maybe you're in front of the speaker. Uh, okay. Let, oh, no. My let, speakers are in my ears. They're getting noise canceled. Oh. Let me try to pull this. Oh, no. I was going to say, let's see, stand up. Let's see those shorts. I'm wearing <laughs> pants right now. So. All right. All right. Uh... No, it's still not. We're still not through. getting it. Can you hear this? Nope. No, no. All right. I guess I need to. I, next next time I'm going to have to get my uh, audio situation squared. Like, you can yeah. hear my voice, though. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. Can hear you were, fine. were you doing the fake strum thing? <laughs> Hold on. I'll go right up against the computer. Yep. Yep. You hear that? Yeah. And nothing. Are you playing? Because we don't hear anything. Yeah, I'm playing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and we tried. We thanks tried. for your right. 43 cents. We deeply apologize. Technical issues. Um, we, we, just when we think we're all set up for audio and video. Reach out to Dave at Aspiring Peasant, and uh, maybe he'll send you a, 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 a Twitter custom, a Twitter video. A Twitter video. Um, <laughs> and then uh, DC Photo 4, thank you very much. Who do you think is better suited in the present and future to partner force build maritime soft capabilities? Uh, the seals or Marsoc? Oh, that's a little spicy. Ooh, that is spicy. Um, and my answer is going to be kind of sacrilegious, as I don't think it matters, um, honestly. Uh, and I, I would say that each of them is going to have their strengths. Um, seals get better, uh, at least when I was exposed to Marsoc. Seals got more and better training, and the Marsoc guys like because the Marine Corps doesn't want them to be too special. However. I would say that the MARSOC guys that I've met have been incredibly, incredibly professional because they're Marines. And I actually think that that professionalism might give them the advantage when it comes to training partner force uh, soft, um, because 
Marines have a lot of discipline and um, in, in my experience have been uh, more even keel than my my seal than, than than my seal brethren. So I'm gonna give it to Marsock actually. Do you do you feel as though because seals generally go straight from boot camp to the seal platoons and 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 look, they're they're yes. they're hooligans or brigands, right? They're they're an offshoot of the navy. Like, you know, they don't have officer country. They don't have a lot of this sort of top-down military sort of structure that, like, yes. young Marines or young infantry do. Do you feel as though they suffer from that? 100%. 100%. Um, I hadn't really thought about this until um, after, actually after I wrote that thread. There was a, a reporter who reached out and, like, asked me what my opinion of it was because they were writing, he was writing a, like, a long, a long-form thing about the culture of the SEAL teams. I'm not sure if it ever got published. Um, but, yeah, no, that's 100%. I think, like... That is a major, that's a draw for guys that don't want to go do like the 82nd Airborne first. Like, but at the same time, I think we're poorer for it in a lot of ways. Um, I think we don't, uh, I think there's a maturity thing. There's a bit of a prima donna thing um, because you're, you kind of came out of nowhere and now you're hot shit. Like, okay, cool. You're tough. You know, and, and you know, you can shoot straight, but like, there's a lot more to the job than those like, than those like flashy skills. Um, we're really bad at logistics. Uh, and just understanding that like logistics win wars, um, like those, those sorts of things. Um, yeah, hundred percent. I think we are worse off for that. And if they started doing something where you had to, let's, let's say, let's say you get your trident, but then you have to go do, um, your first deployment, like attached to a Marine unit or something under, under the command of a Marine officer or some, something like that. Like, uh, I, I think there's potential there. I don't think it's ever going to happen, um, unfortunately, but I think that the teams would be better for it. Yeah. And look, I, I, this isn't on, an, on a SEAL bashing system because they're pipe hitters, you know, and, and sure. you know, in, in the circumstances they're trained for, they're very good at what they do. Right. Right. But it's, it's when you, you know, when it's when you try to use the, uh, you know, the, the scalpel to spread butter on bread, like you're going to, you're going to mess the bread up. Right. Like that's just how, how it is. And I think that, I think that in some cases there's enough, there's enough maturity like that exists there um, where certain platoons are going to be like, are going to be absolute rock stars at, at all of these things. But um I think a lot of the problem, a lot of the, a lot of the cultural problem does come from some level of immaturity and like an overgrowth of ego. Um, and, and so, yeah, no, I, I think that you're, you're totally right. Like they're pipe hitters, but like, if you want the pipe hitters to be able to do more things than like finding ways to instill some perspective and some maturity or, and, and some humility, like those are, those are not bad ideas. Dave, I really appreciate you spending your Friday evening with us and sharing your story with us and, and merging the two Daves, talking about the, the entire person. Um, Three Daves. Really, really good uh, perspective. Yeah. And uh, we'll be back next Friday. We're going to have uh, Vivek Jacob on the show. He served in Nine Para uh, with Indian Special Operations, one of their special operations units. So uh, really excited to have him on the show. Yeah, that'll be amazing. Um, Dave, where can people find you? Um, most, I'm most active on Twitter at aspiring peasant. Uh, I also have a blog that I just started and I, I haven't actually put anything up on it. It's aspiringpeasant.com, but there'll be stuff there. Mostly it's going to be, uh, you know, 
parenting and homeschooling, gardening stuff, um, like uh, resiliency in terms of like the home homesteading things, and then definitely some some war stories too. But it won't be uh, it won't be just like talk, talking about how cool I am. It'll be mostly talking about things that we've learned and things that work for us. Cool. And is there anything that uh, other than those that you want to plug right now? Or... Okay. No, I want to plug. I want to plug you guys. You guys are awesome. Thanks for having me on. The awesome. house. Oh, I, well, guess, I guess you. We we talked about it at the beginning, but uh, like seriously, Jack, I'm gonna send you a bottle. I'm gonna send you each a bottle of the uh, of the Posterity Cider Works cider, so you can like. I would. See what I would love to. Is. I would love to. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you guys each a bottle because like. Uh, that if I got to pinch something, it's that. Because, All right. Like, those All people right. are doing. Those people are doing exactly what I wish like everybody in the world would do, which is like giving back to their community by making a thing and like making people realize that what they have right there is like already wealth. Yeah. Like, that's the magic. That's, that's the awesome. magic in life. And like so, uh, yeah. I'm gonna send you guys each a bottle. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Really yeah. appreciate it, man. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, FiOS, for enabling us to be live tonight. <laughs> yeah. Um, please uh, like and subscribe uh, our channel. Uh, go to. Dave's Twitter, aspiring peasant, um, and then uh, check out our Patreon. Get the get ad free links down below. Episodes and yeah, man, kick it. We're out there. Uh, so yeah, thanks again. We're getting ready for our episode two hundred bash too. That's coming up at the end of the month. It's been in the planning phase. So uh, and, yeah, we'll and see. Dave, you. you're just one more badass to add to the list of yep. badasses we've had on this show. <laughs> And we really yeah, I'm, the, I'm the most I'm the most hairless badass though. I saw everybody was commenting on that. It's like just low T, man. It's not my fault. I have like seven chest hairs and they all have names. You're a vegetarian at the time. Nobody can blame you. You have good hair. Know, right? You have good hair. You see you see you like you seem like a nice guy, Dave, but fuck fuck Dave's hair. <laughs> Again, low T, right? High testosterone pushes God it off of the damn head it. and onto the body. Right here, baby. <laughs> Ooh. That's right. We, we know we know who the alpha is, Dave. That's right. Even if nobody else in my life does. Right. Um, we got you, bro. We got you. All right, guys. Uh, thanks again, Dave, and uh, we'll see everyone else uh, next Friday. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.